and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, like I would say most of America today, I'm doing, I'm pretty sad. Jumping right in. Uh, this has been like, we record on you Thursdays. You said you're going to introduce the guest first. We are. Okay. We record on Thursdays. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it's only Thursday. This has been the longest week. And part of it is that I've been busy at work, mm-hmm. but also so much has happened yeah this week um we, you know we've we've lost two beloved actors one of them uh quite tragically and i don't use that word tragic right yeah. lightly i think sometimes that word gets overused and people refer to september 11th as a tragedy the drama geek community wants to be like not really like that's not what that word really means <laughs> you know it's an awful thing but that's not what tragedy about means. horrifying yeah, horrifying is okay right yeah, it's definitely horrifying okay but um but I do think um, the death we're going to talk about is tragic. And also, there's other things going on in the country, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about in a second. But I want to bring the guest in first, because it would be uncomfortable for him if we just talked about this. Would it? Um, and because I want his point of view. So, um, uh, joining us again, uh, I, I haven't kept track of how many times you've been on. Four, I think? This is four. Yeah. Joining us for the fourth time. I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, if you're wrong... This is the last time. Oh, <laughs> um, curses. And if uh, this turns out to be the fifth time, we will go back and delete one of your episodes. <laughs> Watch it be the go. premium episode, and then you'll really be screwed. Damn it. Uh, um, yeah, it's uh, from our premium episode. It is uh, Battleship Pretension contributor and critic Scott Nye. Hello, everybody. I think we've also started referring to him as co-editor as well. Yeah, we should he, have said Some that. people call me that. Because he yeah. does... Uh, some, some people call me Space Cowboy. Others a co-editor. <laughs> yeah, we should... Uh, I like to refer to you as just pompous. Okay. Just in general. Um, Nobody knows what that word means, by the way, right? It's made pom- up. Okay, pompous? that's what I thought. Pompous. I don't think that's a real word. It's not. Well, no, it isn't, but that's in the song. It's in the song. Yeah. Oh, that awful song. Oh, I don't <laughs> like that song. Um, I feel like pompous is like having the qualities of a pompadour. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, I, if, like, if I didn't have a pompadour, which I don't, right. but I walked around like a guy who you had got a pompadour. You've swagger to you. <laughs> I, Classic I be, pompadour swagger. I would be pompadour. I always thought it as, as like a pompous hippopotamus or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we've had our laugh. Yeah. Now it's time to stop that. Yeah, exactly. But I, I want to talk about what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri, because... Um, because I'm from near there, mm-hmm. uh, Ferguson, Missouri is in St. Louis County. I am from, okay. uh, I'm, well, uh, technically I'm from the city of St. Louis, but only as a baby. I grew up in St. Louis County, which yes, they're two different things. St. Louis city is not in St. Louis County. St. Louis city is not in any County. It's really weird like that. There's not a lot of other examples in the U S like that. It's <laughs> exhausting. Um, but so I grew up in St. Louis County. Um, I didn't grow up in Ferguson. I know where it is. But I, Did yeah. you have any ever have any cause to drive through it or be there uh, for any reason, like um, drama competitions, perhaps? Uh, no, I mean, I might have gone to raves okay. in All that right. area later uh, in 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 my life, but it's uh, yeah, it's uh, north of where I grew up in the south and west okay. counties. That's North County, um, but because I'm from there, I've had a number of people saying, you know what's going on they're coming from one to two point of view, point of views they're either saying like wow in missouri huh of all places because of thinking of missouri like it's a thinking of it like uh you know quiet midwestern yeah they place. might think of it as 
Southern, like Ozark or right. something yeah. like that. Or they're saying, or they're not surprised by it because they're saying St. Louis, right? Because St. Louis, since the early 90s, uh, if not late 80s, has that reputation. It always is ranked high on violent crime. It's always in the top five in violent crime in the U.S. I thought that it's was a, East St. Louis. Well, East St. Louis is also a really bad okay. place, but that's not even in Missouri at all. Right. Add yeah. to the confusion. Man, e- oh, East St. Louis is in Illinois. Um, East St. Louis is to St. Louis as Gary, Indiana is to Chicago. Okay, fair sense. enough, yes. Um, Add to that two different Kansas cities, and w- where are we? I don't yeah, even know. Wow. Missouri's a weird place. Huh? Yeah. No, thank <laughs> There's you. also a Lebanon, Missouri. Yep. But I think people will say Lebanon. They sure do. <laughs> and uh, they will correct you on your correct pronunciation of that word. And they uh, there's a Mexico, Missouri. I didn't know that. People from Mexico, Missouri are not called Mexicans. They are called Mexicoans. Oh, okay. So um, they're, they're Jewish. Uh, <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Yes. Okay. okay. That's enough levity. Sorry. God damn it. We got things to get to. Um, but the thing that has bothered me, the thing that I specifically wanted to address is, uh, I mean, we can talk about how uh, shameful and infuriating it is mm-hmm. that being a black person is apparently a crime uh, in yeah. the U.S. And that, you know, Ferguson is... Uh, there's a great uh, one of my favorite websites that I always talk about is pajiba.com and one of their writers did a great uh, write up on this including some statistics that Ferguson is 65% black and yet over 90% 90% of the arrests in Ferguson are it's black citizens and also only three of the 53 police officers in the Ferguson uh, PD are black so it sounds like what you're telling me David is that the black population should stop being criminals and, <laughs> and start joining the police force. Uh, Obviously, that's the only way you could ever take those statistics, right? Right. Yes, exactly. Um, but uh, I, w- I would definitely urge people to go over to Pajiba.com, which I urge people to do all the time. It's maybe the only like film review website other than Battleship Retention that I read regularly that doesn't infuriate me. Um, okay, th- thank you for adding that thing there um, at the end. I know, I read AV Club too, but yeah. uh, a lot more for TV stuff. Um, anyway, that's not the point. Um, the point is that all those st- statistics are about Ferguson, mm-hmm. and all the questions that I've been getting from friends and coworkers are about the region that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And the point that I want to get across is that this is not a local or regional issue Mm -hmm. this if there's any if there's any um silver lining to this awful week in ferguson is that it's shown a light on what i think is a nationwide problem Mm -hmm. of um the military or not the military the police behaving like the military and uh also the police uh you know shooting uh or you know there was a, a a black man who was killed in uh where was that? Where he was uh, suffocated? Was that New York? Which is that was New York. Yeah. And then since Michael Brown died, there was a unarmed black man shot and killed out here in Los Angeles. That happens all the time. And this police overreach, call it government overreach if you're from the conservative side, uh, is um, not something that you can point at Ferguson or point at St. Louis County and say, I can't believe that's happening there because it's happening everywhere. And it's uh, the police are supposed to be civil servants and when you see these pictures of the of the police in ferguson standing around armored vehicles wearing fucking camo which is ridiculous if this weren't such a serious issue it would be fucking laughable that they're standing around in camo i wonder do you think they're because it's it is theoretically camo is that you are supposed to be camouflaged do you think they do it because it is psychologically more intimidating that it is like people might rebel against the police they won't rebel against an army 
Uh, that might be part of it. I think part of it is just their own fucking egos. Okay. Um, I mean, whether you know, I don't know. I don't know what the studies show about the type of people who join the police force. But studies like the um, Stanford Prison Experiment have shown what happens to people when they get that kind of power. Absolutely. And so there should be checks in place. They're supposed if the uh, the when there's a demonstration, a protest, which there should always. That should always be okay. Um, the police should be there as escorts. Sure. Not, they're and not things, combatants. Yeah, they, and things you know, can get out of hand. Like, literal peacekeepers, but, like, needing to have, I'd say, a fairly broad definition of peace as well. Like, if you have people that, if you have an angry protest, that's not the same as a violent protest. Right, yes, um, exactly. And, and, if you, and if you show up at an angry protest... With a tank. With a tank and yeah. armor and assault rifles or... I don't know about that terminology. Um, no, watch but, out. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's... Uh, I'm reminded of, even though I don't like this movie as much as I used to, in traffic, uh, Topher Grace has a speech about if people were coming to your neighborhood every day, all day, mm-hmm. asking where they can get drugs, eventually you might see, hey, I should start selling drugs. This is what you're telling me I am. And so if you treat an angry crowd like a violent crowd Mm -hmm. they might react like they're a violent crowd anyway what were you gonna say quick side note i was actually asked in a denny's parking lot recently uh by a woman out out a a car window uh hey do you know where the cocaine is (laughs) and i said uh no and then she said do you know do, do you have friends who know where cocaine is and i said no and she and she said she goes what this is los angeles and then peeled out <laughs> it was ridiculous you know, i'm sorry I think, what's that i think you're the inadvertent star of some vine out there oh I think maybe that's yeah. what that is. That she was she's probably vine famous and there's probably a hundred thousand seventeen year olds laughing at that laughing at clueless white guy <laughs> yeah. who doesn't know where the cocaine is oh <laughs> yeah. uh, look at this <laughs> look at this stuffed shirt over here um but yeah uh you know it's interesting i wish i knew more about this this story with ferguson i've been following it a little bit uh, i've been reading articles here and there it takes a really it takes a special kind of event to unify people the way this has mm-hmm. i mean you mentioned it yourself like now people might put their own spin on it but everybody looks at this and says like oh this is a terrible terrible thing like this is really horrendous and then another layer i find myself wanting to email uh my my former employer and a guest of the show eric matthews who made that film uh killing the messenger yeah. about uh free speech and, and press freedom and oh yeah and we that can kind of get to the fact yeah. that two journalists were arrested when yeah night. and just and cops regularly being videotaped saying like turn off the cameras turn off you know and that kind of thing yeah. and it's like well, that's not really how it's supposed to work, at least not here. Uh, well, anywhere, really. But the, it's really not supposed to work like that here. There's a really wonderful comic that's been floating around. And it's a uh, – you see a protester against a tree with his hands up. Uh, and then you see a cop with his, with his uh, rifle right in the protester's face. And then you see a journalist uh, pointing a camera at the cop and both the cop – and the protester saying, don't shoot. Uh, mm-hmm. But, of course, completely different yeah. uh, consequences. I think the fact that you um, are allowed to videotape police in the line of their duty should be something that's taught in elementary schools. Mm-hmm. That, should, that, should be, that should be something, given 
the abilities that we have now with with technology to record things, yeah. kids should know from an early age that this is uh, this is okay. And if a police officer tells you that you can't record them, they're the ones who are wrong. I mean, the whole. I mean, when you think about it, the whole reason there is a Rodney King national case is because somebody happened to videotape it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, I will say, I mean, I, I've, you know, in some of the circles that I run and there are some people, there, there are people that are, uh, predisposed to, you know, standing behind the police as much as possible. And I understand that to an extent, but I mean, even those friends of mine are like, okay, this is, it's ridiculous now. Well, some of my favorite tweets, I don't know if you've seen, they've gone a little bit viral are from like, Military veterans mm-hmm, saying, yeah. like the, the the one guy posted a picture of himself in Iraq <laughs> next to a pic. Did you see this? Yeah, I saw next to a picture of one of the cops in Ferguson, and it says something like, uh, "This idiot's wearing more armor than I did when I invaded Iraq." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's but and that's the thing is, like you said, it is laughable. It, it can be laughable if this were in a if this were in a movie, it would almost have to be satire. Yeah, uh, but it's real life, and the more I read about it, I have this instinctive feeling of. I mean, this can't just go on indefinitely, right? Like, surely somebody's going to be stepping in. And from what it sounds like, I just read something shortly before we started recording that uh, now, like, again, laughable to say this, but it's like a step in the right direction that the highway patrol, which is kind of a state thing instead of a county thing or a city thing, the highway patrol is now going to take over security in Ferguson. Yeah, the cops in Ferguson were just told to stand down, basically, and relieved of duty for the next few days, at least. Which is almost uh, like, uh, you know, just can't you just imagine some guy in a trench coat with admittedly like a highway patrol hat just saying like, who's in charge here? (laughs) And then it's like, I am not anymore. And he flashes his highway patrol badge. Uh, Um, Well, you know, the because, yeah, the governor of Missouri was sort of, you know, urging the police to be more calm. And and I think that's why they eventually send in the highway patrol, something the governor actually has some jurisdiction over. Because the governor of Missouri can't tell the Ferguson police what to do. Yeah. All he can do is suggest. But um, he... (laughs) He urged some calm and peace, and then I don't know if you saw it on Twitter. And then one of our one of the Missouri state senators on Twitter told him to fuck off because he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Literally used the words "fuck off." Well, one of them, um, I think it might have been that same guy, got like taken into custody by the police yesterday. Oh during... no, it was a woman. Oh okay, because she was the one who. Uh, I think not, I might be. I'm not sure if it's the same uh, politician, but there was a Missouri state senator who got tear gassed, and then yeah, at the yeah. press conference yes. the next day said. Am I going to get tear gassed again? And the <laughs> cop said, I hope not. That was just, uh, anyway, so that's probably why the governor, whose name I forget, is it Nixon? Jane, Nixon. Yeah, Jane Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. Um, is, yeah, sending in the highway patrol. Yeah, and it's, and you know, it is one of those things, it is terrible what is happening, and it's terrible what caught, what, what sparked it. Uh, so I don't like to speak in terms of silver linings, but I to do. piggyback on I, what you were what saying, yeah, to piggyback on what you're saying, these will end like this. These riots will end probably relatively soon. Uh, they might, by the time this goes up, they might be over. Mm-hmm. Um, but the effects of it on a national scale on any, like race, uh, poli- the, like the amount of power that police have. And then, uh, the idea of authorities, uh, blocking press, I feel like all three of those are things that ne- will become a national conversation. I hope so. A uh, Georgia congressman actually, I think, today said he's going to introduce a bill to demilitarize police across the country. Hmm. So we'll see if that gains any traction. 
Good. It and seems like the kind of thing that could actually get bipartisan support. I think so, yeah. Um, my, uh, if I have a, uh, I don't know, a pet cause uh, mm-hmm. on this, it's about um, recording, both like oh, dash yeah. cams and um, making it safer for uh, citizens to be able to record police. Yeah, that is why, I mean, I, I mentioned him already, but uh, Eric Matthews and his documentary, like, the idea of the press... Or just not merely the press, but anybody who decides they want to journalistically yeah. sh- film something or whatever, th- it, it extends to them as well. Um, a free press is like s- a giant first step in a freer society. Mm-hmm. And so if we get to a point where where cops are intimidating people and saying you can't film this, yes, they can. They can always do that. You, the, you may not like it, but... They're literally doing nothing illegal uh, at yeah. that point. Yeah. Um, filming like private citizens, that's a different thing. But they are filming the police who are public employees. Yeah. And they have every right to do so. Any final thoughts before we move on to uh, more, sadness? more sad news? <laughs> no. Um, do you want to take the lead, Tyler, on uh, sure. uh, Robin so we, Williams? Well, we did lose a couple people. We lost Lauren Bacall. Uh, she was she was uh, older. Her, her, her death... Less tragic, but still uh, a wonderful actress who acted right. uh, for a good, a, you know, at a, from a very young age to a pretty old age as well. And so, um, and kept taking on like challenging work. I mean, she was mm-hmm. in Dogville when she was in her late 70s. Yeah. 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 It's just, and I believe she, it's, I feel bad that my first uh, thought was um, I wanted to post a quote from the uh, Simpsons episode. Where she does the voice of uh, Marge's psychiatrist I don't remember. in a, I believe, a Prince of Tides uh, Man, I thing, this one. and it's the one where uh, I because I think Marge is like dealing with her fear of flying, and uh, and I think I think it's Lauren. Bacall oh, I didn't know that. Who uh, who voices her psychiatrist? But I'm not 100 percent sure on that. I think that is the case. But anyway, did you um, see the thing that was going on? Lauren Bacall, something she said in an interview about the Twilight movie. That's not a real quote. That's not real. No, oh, man, sorry to bad. disappoint you. Th- who who is it? It somebody made a Twitter account as her, and this was like in the early days of Twitter before you know people really looked oh. into this, and everyone yeah. just assumed it was but Lauren Bacall. It was Bacall. like a long. Yeah, it was like a series of tweets. Oh. I remember seeing them when they came out. Oh, that's boy. too bad. Yeah, because that was very funny. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I'm trying to think who, like, what actors or filmmakers or whatever are still alive that connect us to, I mean, the, the golden age of Hollywood. And I, I mean, you guys know what I mean when I say that, like. The 40s and all that, whether you consider that the golden age or not, just this classical time when Bogart was around and Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and all that. Like, is there anybody left or is she kind of the last one? Kirk Douglas was Kirk in Douglas? movies in the 40s. Yes. Okay. Um, never, there's a lot of people from the 50s still, but yeah. he's the only one I can think of from the 40s. Yeah. And so she was a link to to film, uh, film history. And with her gone, like it, you know, we, we kind of have... Only one person left, yeah. which is Kirk Douglas. Now, admittedly, a, a, a big person at that time, uh, and still now. Um, but yeah, so uh, I feel the need to, to comment on her as well. Um, but yeah, Robin Williams is, is the big story, and um, and it is indeed quite tragic. And I know that we have things that we need to get to. Uh, I feel like we, we can't can really take some time. Okay. Um. So the thing is, this I feel like a lot of people have been 
saying like, oh, I, I loved him in this and this and this. I didn't love every movie he was in, and I didn't love him in every movie. Uh, but when he was when he was on and when he was when he was in a film and he had great material and he really understood how to play the material he could do that thing that david you and i have talked about before there are some actors that when they play a role you literally can't and don't want to imagine anybody else in that role one that you yeah. and i talk about and it tends to happen with comedy a lot you and i talked about uh, jack black and bernie that uh-huh. i can't imagine anybody else in that role why and why would i want to yeah um, but then there are some there are some performers that they bring it's a good performance, but you could think of probably five other actors that could do that. But when I think of Robin Williams in, I I tend to think of more his more serious roles. Uh, World's Greatest Dad is probably a combination of the two, both comedic and uh, dramatic, and his ability to combine those two make that, in my opinion, maybe one of his top three performances in film. But that's my opinion. But then stuff like Insomnia. Uh, where he plays a villain, but still brings a certain type of comedic sensibility to it, thus making the character more sympathetic than you think and creepier than you think. If you have somebody who's just playing the creepy, then you're probably overplaying it. But he plays him as just kind of a, a friendly guy who's looking for the opportunity to make a joke where he can and connect with people where he can like he used to. It's uh, and it's And I love that performance. It's amazing that a guy who... On the one hand, his reputation was for this manic energy that mm-hmm. some, maybe even myself, mocked when he would show up on Letterman or whatever sure. later in his in his career because it seemed like he was kind of uh, you could kind of predict what he was going to do. Mm-hmm. And yet, on screen, he was um, one of the more restrained actors I can think of, and someone yeah. who acted. Uh, rewatching some of his clips and like uh, I rewatched The Birdcage of the Night, which I'll. But I'll get back to the birdcage. Mm-hmm. I'll have more to say about it because it's probably my favorite. Um, uh, just noticing how much he acted with his eyes mm-hmm. um, is is pretty impressive. You know, when you think of him in Goodwill Hunting, he's got you know this uh, a great bushy beard covered in hair and hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and there's so much warmth in him just yeah. coming from from his eyes and there's even I, I know this is silly there was a Zelda commercial that he did I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. that because his, his daughter was named Zelda right, after yeah. Zelda and the two of them did a commercial for Zelda mm-hmm. um, and he he's narrating it but they only see him say one thing uh, at the end and he's got a huge beard in that and yeah. his eyes are so expressive that I almost wanted to tear up at this commercial yeah uh, anyway uh, yeah, I'll, th- I'll throw it to Scott I mean obviously like I can I could bring up other performances as well, but I'll throw it to Scott. Scott, what is what was your opinion of Robin Williams? He was pretty good. Yeah, um, he has his moments. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I was thinking about this after he died. I think he was the first actor that I understood as an actor, hmm. um, largely because he was the voice of the genie in Aladdin, and that came out when I was in first grade, and I was obsessed with that movie, mm-hmm. and especially the genie. And it was, you know, I've learned marketed it to me that way. But you know, <laughs> kids are going to latch onto what they latch onto. Um, yeah. And so my parents explained to me, like, there's this guy, Robin Williams. And soon after, you know, you see Hook, you see Mr. Mrs. Doubtfire. And so he kind of, as far as I can remember anyway, like introduced me to the idea of there being a mind behind the performance and not just being like people who just happen to be there that day or <laughs> however you think of movies as a kid. Yeah. Uh, I think of, um, uh, well, one off screen thing. My, uh, one of my aunts has worked has volunteered for her whole adult, li- adult life. In addition to having a job, she volunteers extensively with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. 
and um, she would often tell me stories about uh, often someone's wish is to meet their favorite actor or athlete or whatever and she would tell me stories about who was uh, an asshole who would just like show up and shake a hand and sign an autograph and who was nice and you know Robin Williams when someone I mean I guess as later in life he was less of a big star especially little kids but in the 90s when a kid wanted to meet Robin Williams it was an all day affair for the kid and and the family he'd show up he'd take him out to lunch they'd go uh, all over the place my aunt my aunt loved Robin Williams the other thing that is tied to my family uh, about Robin Williams is how much uh, he was an actor that we all agreed on you know in everything Um, and so much of my memories of um, growing up as a film fan have to do with the different transitions of the Robin Robin Williams movies I watched with my family. You mentioned Aladdin. I saw that in the theater on New Year's Eve with my my family. Hmm. Uh, Jumanji I saw uh, with my family. But then at a certain point, I remember my parents saw Dead Poets Society and I was a little kid and they were like, you know, there's suicide and stuff and there's some, and at first they were like, I don't know if you're ready to see this yet. But then that was something we uh, appreciated together and then i later watched goodwill hunting with my dad who mm-hmm. like liked the movie but was a bit uh upset by all the cursing um, <laughs> or cussing i don't know why i said cursing yeah. my dad would never have said cursing he said cussing um and then there was the birdcage which I mean, is an r-rated movie but um is one of the most important movies in my family to the extent that here we go okay the day that my dad died he um had the thing that happened to him happened very early in the morning and he lost consciousness very, very early, but he was not, he did not die until 15 hours later at like mm-hmm. nine o'clock at night. So it was a very long and very taxing day being at the hospital all day, family members and friends coming and going, uh, just being, being very emotional and this whole day of processing what we knew was going to happen, but waiting for it to happen. Um, and when we all got back, I, you know, I had, my sister and I had both come down, from our different colleges and my mom was there at home with my brothers and we got back to the home at the house at the end of the day we didn't feel like sleeping we didn't feel like talking we've been talking all day and we were so emotionally exhausted my mom just said let's watch a funny movie mm-hmm. and we watched the birdcage and mm. uh re-watching it again this week i revisited that and um uh reflected on how important that movie is to me and to the national conversation about uh, you know, to, to think that 10 years before, at least 10 years before gay marriage became a constant um, uh, topic, you had this movie in which the big, one of the biggest stars on the planet mm-hmm. was not only playing gay, but playing someone who was unapologetically human yeah. and gay. Uh, it was a, it's an incredibly important movie to me. In a movie that is big in a lot of ways. And yeah. there, it is not a film without stereotypes. <laughs> but, no, he, but it's so but there's, there's such a human heart on the part of all the characters. Um, and he is, and he is, you know, wonderful. And now admittedly next to Nathan Lane, I mean, he looks like he's in a Bergman film, but like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, that's a, that's a really wonderful performance. And he does need to be the, no pun intended, the straight man of the film. (laughs) Um, He needs to be the core of that film because if he's not, then like if he's like, it's incredibly generous what he does in that movie. He's willing to not play. I mean, he has his moments obviously, but he like Nathan Lane is the one 
out there all yeah. the time and, and Hank Azaria, Azaria even further even further you know and yeah so for a guy like I said who, who's known for his manic energy to read the screenplay read the lay of the land yeah and know to to rein it in and be in what he had to be it's yeah. a great performance well they offered it, him Nathan Lane's part originally actually and he said no I think this is where I belong huh. yeah. Yeah. yeah and he could have played Nathan Lane's part oh yeah very easily but yeah and that's but even the one big moment that always gets talked about when he really goes big when he's showing the guy yeah you do this dance you do twilight you do uh yeah madonna uh he's doing that demonstrably for him and then people always forget how that ends is he saying you do this you do this you do this but you keep it all inside yeah because <laughs> he's telling the guy to just shut it's his long-winded way of telling the guy to just shut up and let nathan lane's character let yeah. albert be the star of this yeah uh and so if, yeah even that big moment that it always gets the clip you always forget how that moment ends that it's it's a it's an inversion of that yeah and it's and that and yeah he could be i mean obviously in he was asked to be crazy and over the top in a lot of things uh whether it be good morning vietnam or even or dead poet society or patch adams and he could be good at that at times it could be a little grating because after a while you came to just view it as oh that's his shtick and whoever was making the film said just do your do that thing you do, and uh, <laughs> and then I'll just stand back here. Um, but he also ha- could channel that energy into tremendous control. Another movie that he's m- marvelous in is Awakenings. Which I've never seen, actually. Robert De Niro got the Oscar nomination because his is the, the character who, like, is coming out of a... He's not necessarily in a coma, but he's he's not far off. And so he's coming out of that, and it kind of has the, the mind of a child. And so... It, that's the more showy performance, but I mean, again, Robin Williams is at the heart of that film, and he is the he is the control of that film, allowing other people to be the variables, which is inc- which is insane to think that anybody other than Robin Williams would be the variable. But he's, you know, I, and when you hear when you hear stories about him on set, whether it be uh, working with a director, or working with writers, or working with other actors, he was remarkably generous. And very giving and that sort of thing, and had just a tremendous heart. And uh, and yeah, it is uh, it is sad that he is gone, and it is sad the way he went. And I will say this: this is the thing that uh, happened on uh, Facebook. Um, there have been a lot of people writing uh, that anytime a, a, a performer of any kind, especially a beloved performer, like dies in a very specific way before their time, it starts a, a larger conversation mm-hmm. about the way they died, whether it be. Uh, you know, drugs or something like that. Um, and in this case, suicide, there's been a large conversation about suicide. And uh, there have been a lot of people, and I, I kind of agree, uh, there have been a lot of people who, um, they've been posting this graphic of Aladdin hugging the genie, and it mm-hmm. says, genie, you're free. Yeah. Now, the thing is this. All right. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not going, I'm probably not going to get emotional. As I said, there's just a bunch of suicide in my family. And... While I understand the idea of being free of de- free from depression and how horrible that can be and how oppressive that can be, I absolutely understand the idea of that. But while the it's one thing for the genie to be free, but he can still come back and hang out with his friends. They still have him. Right. He's not depriving himself. Also, that's something somebody else gave him. You right, know. Right, right. So that doesn't work completely. Somebody else, uh, uh, I don't know if you know him, but he's a, he's a listener and he's, he listens to more than one lesson. He's also a St. Louis native, I believe, uh, named David Struger. I don't, he shared this. I don't know if it originated with him. It's a line, it, there's a graphic from Hook 
uh, and it says to live. To live would be an awfully big adventure, hmm. which is would you know because in that film. Captain Hook, who has no real future. Uh, the thing about Neverland, nobody really has a future. Uh, but Hook says, death is the only adventure left. And at the end of the film, Peter Pan says, no, to live is, would be an awfully big adventure. And I feel like that's what we should try to focus on. It, suicide, whether you think a person has much choice in it or not, uh, I'm not sure how I feel because, like I said, there's a bunch of su- there's been a lot of suicides in my family. Each one a very specific set of circumstances, um, but regardless, it can it can hurt the people left behind. And also, there's there's always hope. There, I feel like there can you can always find hope. I mean, I've struggled with tremendous depression to the extent that I've I've said this on my other podcast. So I'm comfortable. I'm not comfortable, but I'm willing to say <laughs> it now. I mean, there are times I'm not, when I'm not comfortable. Okay, I'm sorry. All right. Uh, I guess I'll just put on my happy face for you, David. Um, but, like, it got to the point where, I mean, I was, I was, you know, weeping regularly for no particular reason. And I would punch myself in the face because I would get very angry with myself for, for no particular reason. And it got really bad. And, I, you know, obviously I thought about suicide a lot at that time. And for some people that thought is overwhelming. And so, again, it's hard to know how much choice plays. But I will say... To emphasize, ah, you're free. It's a nice thought, but I feel like it could lead to this idea of suicide being associated with freedom. It's yeah. like there are other ways of being free. Yeah. Uh, and so, I agree with that. so I, you know, I, I apologize if that sounds, you know, callous in any way. Um, or, no, I think, you're right no, I think that's very human and okay. empathetic. Okay. Because there have been some people that have been writing about suicide and they, and they really, they come down really hard on the idea that it is a selfish act and i think it is and it does hurt the people it you know it leaves them with that question of what could i do and that's a horrible thing to ask to have to ask yourself um so there is that and so i don't want to i don't want to just say like oh these people are just selfish and cowardly uh because there's more to it than than that certainly but uh but yeah and so i i'm i'm kind of happy with the larger discussion about suicide that this has caused because as people have Again, often said, back to this idea of silver linings. Yeah, people say like Robin Williams had a family. He had an Oscar. He had probably a lot of money. He had the respect of uh, you know generations of people, mm-hmm. and yet, yeah, this still happened. And if this can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. And so, uh, hopefully, this can cause people to reach out if they're feeling poorly, or it can help. Uh, you know, if you if you have a friend who is dealing with some stuff, maybe you can reach out to them. Um, well, and uh, it can be re- it can be rough when that happens, but uh, but I feel like you know it's worse than it, it's not as bad as the alternative. Unless you have some final thoughts, no, Scott? I think that's a good well, way to sum it up. Um, normally, but right before we get into it, is when I would uh, do an ad, but I'm not going to do that right now. Well, I'll get to an ad a little bit later. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> put some sort of buffer. Yeah, there. Um, that would be weird. It, uh, definitely a Casey Kasem moment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what? Uh, so I can talk about. Hey, you know what? Robin Williams was in a bunch of comedies. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the other thing I would add is that. As remembering Robin Williams, it was very sad at first, but as soon as I started watching his old stuff, I got Popeye as soon as I got home that day. Mm-hmm. And then I watched his interview with Inside the Actor's Studio the next day at work. Uh-huh. And, I mean, you 
you'll be laughing before long, you know. Yeah. You'll have to hell a body of work. And um, Mark Maron reposted the uh, WTF. Yeah, which is a great episode. Which I haven't haven't re-listened yet. I remember listening when it first aired. Um, Yeah, we have a comedy thing going on. We do. And so I figure, you know, uh, and a few people have been, uh, enough people have been submitting Mrs. Doubtfire that it looks like it'll make the list. Spoilers, everybody. Over Um, the birdcage? Oh, uh, a couple people have, have done the birdcage. It's it's interesting that have, film. Like, I haven't seen. I've seen Mrs. Doubtfire. Maybe I watched it twice when I was young. I don't. It wasn't. It's not a touchstone for me. Like it seems to be for a lot of people. It does seem to be that for a lot of people. I wonder if maybe if you and I were even maybe three years younger. I feel like it might be. Right. You right. know, like for example, like Scott, we're a little bit older than you. Not much, but we're a little bit older than you. So, like you said, you saw Aladdin, and then you went back and watched Hook. I saw Hook in the theater, right. then I saw Aladdin, then I saw Mrs. Doubtfire. And so I feel like if I was just a few years younger, then Mrs. Doubtfire would have been one of the films that introduced me to Robin Williams. Right. Yeah, it was huge for me at the time. I don't think it holds up very well. I haven't watched it. But I bet he holds up well. Oh, of course. Of course, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, but I haven't seen it in a very long time. Do I own it? <laughs> I bet I do. Yeah, I do. Um, it's sure always do, huh? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, I think I might have inherited that one, but again, it's uh, his performances. You don't have the birdcage, though. I do not. No, and oh. you know what? In retrospect, I think I. I think I will purchase it. It's on Blu-ray. It's on Blu-ray. Uh, well, absolutely. You got to see that crystal clear. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of color in it. Shots of Miami. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. yeah, you're gonna get a lot of neon. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, and, and a so scene where his son wipes the. Uh, foundation or tone or whatever off his face and wipes it on the wall you see that very clearly oh, on man. The <laughs> it just pops yeah <laughs> um yeah so uh okay well what i will say and i forgot to mention it uh, last week unfortunately uh special thanks by the way to our guest last week uh christine ziemba yes from lafs.com uh, yeah that was a great conversation it was a lot of fun. uh lots of fun um so okay you have until you listeners and you guys too by the way this is uh, this is up for uh contributors to the podcast as well okay um so if you want the birdcage on there david now's your chance all right and you know what i might even count it twice oh we should cut that out <laughs> um so uh you have until august 31st to email me tyler at battleship your 10 submissions for the top 50 comedies list all right you don't necessarily have to order them and even if you do i'm not going to i'm not going <laughs> to care all right i i considered uh, assigning point values and having you guys order them. Uh, I do this basically by myself, and that's too much trouble. Uh, so just ten movies, no particular order, uh, that you think absolutely belong on the list. And here's what I will say, something I have started to notice um, based on stuff that people have emailed. And this happened when we made the top 100 movies list. Uh, uh-huh. I will not get specific. But what I will say is, don't assume other people are going to submit that movie. (laughs) What what movie am I thinking of? There's a couple, but whatever it is, a lot of people said like, they say, Oh, I would have included this, but I figure everybody is. They're not. Because and now I was thinking that. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I feel like when we did this, this is how Putney Swope got to be president (laughs) of that company. (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, I feel like we go through this every time saying that. Yeah. These, Literally put the ten movies you think need to be on the list. Don't take into consideration what other people might doing. Yeah. Might be doing. This is yeah. yeah and it's. I mean, look. It is. It's tempting. I know that. I mean, I I submitted my ten, and I think there was one. There was one on there that I thought. You know what? I, I'll. I think it's a wonderful film, and I don't think anybody else is going to put it on. So I'll put this one on. 
but that was after I made sure that the other nine I absolutely thought belonged on there, whether I thought everyone else was going to submit them or not. Um, and and so I so yeah, whatever that movie is that you right now I'm talking to you, listener. Whatever that movie is that you're thinking of that you assume everyone else is going to submit, they're not. So get to it because this this list is shaping up to piss me off. <laughs> All right. So All get right. to it. Um, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Um, at forty minutes in, but I feel like that's okay. Uh, this is a counterpoint. Make, make your stuff going on. Yeah, but this episode is a counterpoint. I guess a year was it last year? Yep. We did a point. We did point mm-hmm. with um, Mike Schmidt with uh, with comedian Mike Schmidt about uh, blockbuster fatigue. Mm-hmm. We're sick of these blockbusters. <laughs> oh, I love this character. <laughs> Get them away from me. <laughs> um, but now we're seeing, we, we had someone who spoke up and said, I feel opposite. I feel the opposite way. It's our guest, Scott and I. And it's he, somebody totally different. <laughs> yeah, let's now introduce the other guest who's been sitting quietly for 45 minutes. Um, uh, Scott wanted to talk about blockbuster elation, as he's calling it, because you are a big fan of these. Uh, I can be. It's funny. Right. When I pitched this a year ago, I was much more enthused about them than I am after this summer. Okay. <laughs> but I'll focus more on the enthusiasm. Yes, yeah, which, you, which I don't know me. if you're just not having checked your email. You haven't uh, said you wanted to go to the Sin City 2 uh, press screening. I do want to. I don't think it works schedule-wise. Wait, did you forward that on to everybody? I didn't get that. <laughs> uh, you know why you didn't get it? Why? Because you were already seeing something else that night. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm, you... I'm happy to see that one, actually. Yeah. So, son um, of a bitch, though. <laughs> uh, Why couldn't anyway. it be one of those that has like five different screening nights? That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, they don't, the blockbusters don't do that. Yeah, That's it's one screening only. Usually, week of. Yeah. Turn around the review that, that night. Although I feel like there's another, like, uh, there, there are bigger critics who get to go to some other screening. Yeah, right? of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get the all media events, which is like the last call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The um, bottom of the barrel yeah. screenings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oof. Uh, well, we'll get to the giver later. <laughs> um, but actually, you know what? Actually, let's start with the giver or with sure. the idea because I was looking at the list of all right, what blockbusters, what big studio releases? Like, because I, I feel like when we talk about blockbusters, the term blockbuster means that it was successful, right? But I feel like that's not how we're talking about. It. We're talking about movies that are engineered or expected. Yeah, blockbusters. I think that's how people talk about it these days. Okay, yeah. like nobody's so, calling. Nobody would call the year it came out, Little Miss Sunshine, a blockbuster. But you know, for its budget, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everything. But yeah, what we're talking about are these these big studio releases. And I was looking. It's at, practically its own genre now. Not unlike the term indie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Which they have their own feel. Like someone's like, oh, I'm making an indie film. Oh, what's the budget? Oh, it's like thirty five million dollars. <laughs> but it has this. It's a little quirky. <laughs> Um, so it must be indie. But when I'm looking at, okay, uh, major studio releases that I've seen from this year, I don't know if Divergent counts, because I don't know if Lionsgate... Is that Lionsgate? Yeah, but I'd say for the size that, of movie it is. I mean, okay. I would count The Hunger Games. It seems like about the same okay. sort of deal. Now, what about Draft Day? That's a big studio movie. But well, it's, no, but, but it's, it's not, not like... Yeah. But it's not from a major studio. It's like... It might also be Lionsgate or something like that. But it's not a matter of just studios. I mean, Argo isn't a blockbuster, you know? <laughs> Okay, so this is so. Wait, if uh, I'm trying to think, is Cloud Atlas a blockbuster? I don't know. Sure, why not? Get a hundred million dollar budget. That's pretty big. Okay, are we so only that- thinking in terms of budget, or I mean, I feel like content, pro- content, and also maybe uh, intended audience. Yeah, uh, has a big part of it as well. And I guess like the- Draft Day, I don't think is it is appealing <laughs> the same people as Divergent. No, but it is appealing to it's got it's full of 
national the National Football League, it's going for you know the biggest t- the biggest TV audience in the world or uh, all year round. I mean, is for the Super Bowl. So if they're going for that kind of thing, to me, that's something that's aiming for a blockbuster. Should have called it the Super Bowl then. People don't watch yeah. the draft. Yeah, they should have aired the <laughs> Super Bowl <laughs> in a movie theater because movies are different than sports. <laughs> <laughs> um, people do watch the draft. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a big deal. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, that movie I didn't like. Um, but, the, okay, now The Giver, Weinstein and Walden Media. I don't know almost nothing about The Giver. But w- would you say, first blush reaction, does that I guess qualify I'd, for what we're talking about? I guess I'd say no, but I have no, I, I don't, I haven't seen a trailer. I don't know really what it's about. Okay, but Divergent is, but this isn't. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it's the, an intangible feeling inside of me. I mean, it could be. It's it's argued one way or another from a content standpoint because Divergent was based on a book written in the height of like young adult science fiction, like Hunger Games, like I mean, not not that Twilight is necessarily science fiction, but you know, aiming it uh, at that audience, knowing that anything based on a book, uh, any movie based on a book that's intended for that audience could be a blockbuster. The giver was not written with that in mind from no, what it sounds like, say, from what it sounds like the movies being made with that in mind. So it's hard. Yeah. So that's where you get kind of the, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to intention, either intended yeah. audience or, or whatever. And, and that's what I'm saying about draft day and about this, that they're not being made. Whereas Argo is made. You could either say it's a passion project for Ben Affleck, or you could say it's made to win awards. In right. either case, it's not made to make the most money. Right. Whereas I feel like Draft Day and uh, The Giver are made with big uh, returns in mind. I would say Argo, there's movies like that are made to make a different, a decent return on investment. You know, kind of middle brow. St- we're still not talking about Argo as a blockbuster. No. I feel like this whole episode is going to be us defining <laughs> what we're talking about. I think perhaps before we get too far into it, now that we're a little bit far from the depressing news, we should probably uh, get into our sponsors. Okay, well, let's, we talk about, let's talk about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for uh, professional quality uh, earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. Uh, you find those at tweakedaudio.com. And if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, you get all that for one third off and no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. All right. We have two other sponsors as well. Oh, two. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. This up. Ep- Can I say something? Yes. Because um, I don't want to forget something we were talking about earlier. Okay. Um, big stars who are still alive. Mm-hmm. Olivia de Havilland. Oh, that's okay. right. Yes. But, I mean, did she come? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, she, she was, was definitely in- around in the 40s. Was she in Robin Hood? Yeah, which is 39. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? That, yeah, so she's, she must be getting up there. She's like 100, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, Joan Fontaine, her sister, just died, I think, this year. Okay. Um, and they're around the same age. Okay. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. But she's very much uh, secluded. She's not doing a lot of press or anything, you know? So, yeah. as far as an active She's not length, tweeting about Twilight movies? No, no. <laughs> what about Christopher Lee? When did he, when did he start? The 1800s? I don't know. The guy seems immortal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he is like he's almost, a guy like an Ian McKellen that people didn't know. Like, Yeah, I know. It's he weird. wasn't famous when he was like in his 20s and 30s, right? No. Yeah. He was famous when he was... 40 and yeah, 50, yeah. right? That's true, yeah. And now he makes heavy metal albums. <laughs> he sure does. Man, he's the best. Um, and what was it, Snuffbox yeah. that had that wonderful uh, <laughs> sketch right. yeah. about him in a porn? Yeah. All right, um, Olivia, de Havilland, Olivia de Havilland is 98. Oh, my. Okay. So, two more sponsors. Bear with us. And then on to Blockbuster Relation. Blockbuster 
What, however you want to define it. <laughs> All right. This episode is brought to you by Aperture, a movie equipment company committed to providing quality equipment at an actually affordable price. The company was founded by photographers and filmmakers that struggled with the steep costs of prof- professional-grade equipment. So they set out to sell gear at prices that will actually allow somebody to pursue their dream of filmmaking without going bankrupt. And right now... They're holding the Aperture at All Costs video contest. They are giving away thousands of dollars in lights, microphones, and monitors for artists that can best show why they are pursuing the path of art at all costs. For more information, just go to Aperture.com or click on the banner ad at BattleshipPretension.com. That contest sounds pretty great if you are an independent filmmaker. I'll say that. So I like that word, too. Aperture. Aperture, I know. (laughs) uh, And for some reason, it makes perfect sense... Uh, how do you spell aperture? Actually, a p e r t u r e. Okay, so they're spelling it a different way, which threw me. But I feel like it's still aperture. A p u t u r e. So maybe I should specify that as well. So you can go to aperture dot com. A p u t u r e. Gosh, I hope I'm saying it right. <laughs> I can't think of anything else it would be. Uh, aperture. Yeah, maybe it's aperture. 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 That's what we're sa- Okay, guys, uh, I appreciate uh, your sponsorship dollars. We are now saying it, Apputur, from now on. <laughs> you are welcome. Um, okay, uh, and our other sponsor, and we mentioned it last week, this episode is brought to you by Believe Me, the comedy about college students scamming gullible churchgoers into funding their non-existent ministry. Starring Christopher McDonald and Nick Offerman, Believe Me is a Christian film that could actually be good. What a novel idea. That's that is my opinion. Um, and who knows? It, it could it could not be. But I'm actually it probably is because they're because they're sponsoring <laughs> us. Oh, sure. It's absolutely. Probably good. Absolutely. Um, I you know, what? admittedly, I probably I might not have accepted the sponsorship if I didn't if I wasn't optimistic. Uh, the tone of the trailer looks so much different and so much more professional than other uh, similar films that uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm trying to get a trying to get them to send me a screener copy for uh, more than one lesson. Um, but anyway, so for more information about uh, Believe Me, you can watch the trailer and that sort of thing. Uh, you can click on the sleazy, smiling Christopher McDonald at BattleshipPretension.com. Is there any, any other kind? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> sometimes sometimes uh, he'll, uh, he'll sneer. He's sleazy and sneering instead of smiling. Okay. So anyway, I want to turn, turn it over. I feel like, uh, like with our guests last week, we're not letting our guests talk. So I want to let Scott tell us why he gets excited about blockbusters. Um, for a variety of reasons, mostly because they're still entertaining me after all these years. But essentially, the studio model now is such that they pick a release date and then figure out all the details. Sometimes even the title of the movie they're releasing, it seems like, these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that process can create totally boring movies like Man of Steel, or it can create weird things that they didn't really have time to finesse just so or like what um well like gi joe retaliation for example i didn't see um that. which almost nobody saw but which i think film critic david ehrlich rightly called the most expensive political satire of all time watch out um it and on one hand it has uh the rizza starring as a samurai master who trains ninjas at the top of a mountain so it's that kind of movie uh-huh. but it's also about um I think it's aliens. Maybe it's just a foreign organization of some kind who replaced the president with uh, an imposter and then try to take over the United States through him, which 
if you know anything about the more fringe section, the conservative base is not like the craziest idea. <laughs> um, and so that's an example of something that the studio probably didn't have actively in mind when they're like, let's do another GI Joe movie. Yeah. But then it comes out and, you know, the climactic scene is this fake president instigating nuclear war against a guy who looks just like Kim Jong-un. <laughs> um, so it's... Do I need to see this? I, I think everybody should see G.I. Joe No, I didn't see the first G.I. Joe. Totally unnecessary. Okay. They, in fact, kill off most of the main cast at the start of the movie. Wow. I remember seeing a trailer for G.I. Joe Retaliation, and there's a... I saw just a brief clip of... A, an action sequence that takes place like on a cliffside. Yeah. And that, that looked great to me. That is the most fun part of the movie in the sense that you would expect a GI Joe movie to be fun. Oh, good. Oh. And then there's all this other shit that doesn't make any sense at all. Okay. Um, but it's remarkably cogent in its own way. Um, so yeah, things like that get me very excited about the state of blockbusters, even though for some reason you all tend to be obsessed with Captain America, the winter soldier, which bores me to tears. Who's you all? I didn't see it. <laughs> um, the Rotten Tomatoes critics base. I don't know, it got like a 90 something on Rotten Tomatoes. And I enjoyed it tremendously. I did. I do have certain issues with it, but there are things about it that I certain sequences that I really appreciate. There's a, uh, fair, a relatively extended action sequence that takes place inside an elevator, which I think was uh, a lot of fun. But I it's so Comic Con last year. It's so oh, badly it? shot. It's like there's no voice behind those Marvel movies, you know, and that's that's what I'm looking in the movies for is some sort of voice and distinct personality. But don't you but don't you think you might be looking in the wrong place when it comes to blockbusters? I, as G.I. Joe Retaliation, others I will list here. Who, what is the director? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Chu, who I think came from like the step up movies of all things. The name um, sounds familiar. Yeah. I can't remember what he did before this, but this is the only thing I know him from. But uh, also, uh, the it sounds weird, but my favorite sequence in Winter Soldier is what could basically just be called an exposition sequence. Yeah, in which that is uh, a, a character's brain has been, <laughs> or just personality or knowledge or whatever, has been preserved in 1970s computer technology. Huh. Uh, it's and and that by the way, that personality is Toby Jones, <laughs> who's the best. Uh, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, it's um montage and exposition scene that somehow is the most thrilling part of the movie <laughs> yeah it just and it's it's it is fascinating because that felt i don't know any any time one of those marvel movies and again uh, i like do i like most of them yeah i'd say i like most of them uh, i'm not sure if i love any of them i love the avengers um but uh but there is uh, a definite they they do seem to want to downplay uh, any any chance of like a tourist vision uh, in favor of you know homogenized uh, just homogenized look uh, to the extent that anytime something a little strange breaks out like for example Iron Man three whether you like it or not the identity of the Mandarin uh, is not what you would expect uh, everything about that is not doesn't fit with the the Marvel universe and then that that sequence in Winter Soldier. Uh, the film, I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be as, as like espionage thriller as it was. Mm -hmm. It seemed more like a Bourne movie if Jason Bourne wore a costume. Right. Um, so I liked that. I think I like any superhero movie that winds up taking on properties of other genres. Like what I liked about Guardians of the Galaxy is that is when it departed most from super the superhero genre and tried to be more of that kind of 
space opera kind of thing. Right. That's Rag why I bunch. really want there to be a uh, Black Widow Hawkeye movie that's essentially like you can count on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to get Hulk in there because it's Mark Ruffalo. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. He'll, yeah. He'll make an appearance. Um, but that's why you can play the Rory Culkin part. <laughs> Um, that's why the only Marvel movie that really speaks to me is Iron Man 2, which is the one that I, everyone seems to dislike for whatever reason. People hate that, and I don't understand why. Well, at the time, I remember people who were like, it's setting the Avengers too much. You know, there's too much other stuff going on. But now that's like all the Marvel movies are doing, and people love it for it. Yeah, um, compar- I, I do think uh, the climax fizzles a little bit, but I like the villains. I love this. I love the scene where he's fighting War Machine. Um, yeah, I mean, there's like three action scenes in the whole movie. It's really about Tony Stark being a self-destructive asshole to the yeah. extent that the if you spend time in film school, you'll learn about screenplay structure, the three-act structure and all that. And at the end of every second act, there's like a down moment where everything looks hopeless. Yeah, lowest point. Right. And the reason that happens in most superhero movies is like the villain got really tough and now the superhero's down for the count. But in Iron Man 2, it's just because Tony Stark pissed off everyone who was close to him mm-hmm. and he has to go win them back. And I think they really focus in on Tony in an important way that's much more different and much more thrilling, I think, than certainly the next Iron Man movie or most of the other Marvel movies. But I think even in the next Iron Man movie, and we'll we'll move away from purely <laughs> superhero movies, although at this point that's it's most almost of the business, synonymous. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's one of the reasons why I think Tony Stark will be the most remembered character of the Marvel Cinematic Universe because so much of the not even action, conflict. So much of the conflict comes from him. Yeah. And what I like about that third one, first off, I think it throws you a lot of curveballs, which people almost always complain about. The thing in the third one is like, he never spends any time as Iron Man. I like, like that aspect. I love that aspect yeah. because in the Avengers, like there, it actually carries over from the Avengers because you get this moment where Captain America says like, who are you without the suit? Right. And then he very smugly says like, I'm a millionaire inventor, <laughs> that kind of thing. But an actual, but the third movie seems to be him asking himself, "Yeah, who am I without the suit?" To the extent that the fi- that the original script, the the last line of the film was supposed to be, "I'm Tony Stark," but of course the studio didn't like that, so they had him say, <laughs> I "Actually, didn't know that." They said they had him say, "I'm Iron Man." Now it still has significance because he destroys all of his suits and he has the the little thing in his chest removed. So which is like the weirdest ending. I know <laughs> they're like, we just solved all the problems, yeah, which is why I kind of respect that movie because it, it does, it runs counter to everything you expect it is going almost everything you expect it's going to be. Um, but again, like it's the character finding himself after he's reached his lowest point and just a, has been a total asshole in the second film. And then has really been required to be part of a team, which he's never really done before in the Avengers. Now it's, Okay, how has this changed me? Um, so I feel like that's a, a fair, he's a fairly dynamic character, and I like that a lot. But I feel like, by and large, I agree with you. The visual, the visual and editing uh, aspects of all of these films, like they're all they're all meant to go together, which I think ultimately is we talked about this probably why Edgar Wright is no longer involved in yeah, Batman. Seems to be the case because he's too individualistic. Yeah, I mean, I heard that came down to more script issues than, like, a visual design. Um, yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if that played into it, too, given yeah. how... If they if they had worked out the script issues, it would have eventually have gotten to the visual yeah. aspect. Um, yeah, I mean, I was wa- re-watching The Avengers a couple weeks ago, and that is the ugliest summer blockbuster I maybe I've ever seen. It is so devoid of any uh, visual ideas or vision or personality. It just looks, like, muddy and 
bad. I like the pacing of the uh, the pacing and the wit of the uh, the last uh, action sequence. Like, I feel like they still have time for character moments and such. Yeah, I would have to disagree. I like the way that the Avengers looks. Really? <sighs> yeah. Man, watching two different movies here. <laughs> uh, I don't have anything else to say about superhero <laughs> movies. Because oh, okay. I have a, are you excited about the Fantastic Four movie? I don't. I mean, like everybody, I don't know, hardly know anything about it. Um, but it's the guy who did Chronicle. Yeah, you, and I like that. Chronicle, yeah, right? um, I'm definitely intrigued because, and this I know pisses all the comic book fans off. They said they're departing pretty radically from the comics. Yeah, um, which excites me because I've read the comics. I know what they're like. I don't need to see a movie of the comics. You know? Yeah, I don't know if you saw. Oh boy, that in itself is going to piss people off. That <laughs> idea of like, no, I just want a movie of the comic. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. That Kate Morrow said, uh, like. I told Josh Trank I hadn't read any of the comics, and he said, good, don't. We're not yeah. doing any of that. <laughs> Which, to me, sounds great. Um, but we'll see. You know, I mean, there's a history of those movies turning out pretty poorly, too, so you never know. Well, they turn out poorly when they try to be the comics, so maybe this one will turn out like the best superhero movie <laughs> you've ever seen. It could. I mean, I another superhero movie I love is Superman Returns, and that departs pretty radically from the comics in a number of ways, not the least of which Superman having a child. I'm seeing a, a trend here that the blockbusters that you like are the ones like Iron Man 2, like Superman Returns. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, it's been a while since like, we've done that. All these ones that a lot of people don't like. Because Superman I, Returns does not have a good reputation. I've never seen it. No, I think it was better liked at the time. I'm not like actively setting myself That's you not know, my against recollection the, okay. as someone who has been reading reviews for years okay my recollection my recollection is not that anyone was that almost no one liked superman returns at oh, the time i remember more people liking it and now it's become a thing where it's like oh superman is lift stuff um which is it's just true but it's also about you know melancholy and mourning regret and all these things that superhero movies never tackle and it does seem weird that they would tackle it in a superman movie like the, if any character can be most sure of himself it would be superman but at the same time it was one of the first times I found the character interesting. Right. Um, I often found Superman to be pretty boring, including well, but in, now, in Man of Steel. But now, because of Zack Snyder, Superman is going to be known as Mopey. Right? But it's like so, such an unearned Mopey. I mean, the thing that Superman Returns is oh, that... Oh, yeah. It, I'm, not, I'm not defending Man yeah, of Steel. Is I, that it, I think it was my least favorite movie last it year. It was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Superman Returns takes place when he's like well into his career. He's dealing with adult problems, mm-hmm. you know. Probably for you know, the first time, really, he's dealing with finding out there's a child out in the world, finding out that uh, the woman he thought would love him forever has left him for another man. You know, it's like, whereas in Man of Steel, like, he's got powers. I'm sorry. Like, that seems to be his main struggle is that like he's burdened with being able to help people. Right. And it, the, the chronology is all messed up for no good reason. So we don't even see, like, I feel like I never have a, I can never pin down what he's feeling at any given moment in Man of Steel. I went through this all last year, but <laughs> yeah. because there's there's no reason that it jumps back and forth chronologically, right? I, I feel like there's no good reason for that to happen. It makes it just more muddled. Anyway, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about <laughs> yeah, let's, the ones let's, we like. Let's go. Let's go broad a little bit uh, because oh, with like a, uh, the Heat, bridesmaids. Exactly. Let's <laughs> you know, broadbusters. That's what I like to call them. Um, so, and obviously, like we can get specific, like you did with GI Joe. Uh, and you started to go into it a little bit because of what a blockbuster can allow uh, a filmmaker to do. Um, but let's let's continue with that. What is it about the blockbuster as a genre, which we've already kind of said it is, within that genre you can do a lot. Uh, there's a lot of different subgenres. But what is it about the genre of blockbuster that most appeals to you? Or is it that people can be free to experiment? 
I mean, essentially, that's what I'm looking for in any movie is a personality and a vision to come through. So that is still excites me most. But also because of their budgets and because of like the sort of uh, need to one up each other that keeps going on. uh, You see stuff in Blockbuster that you genuinely haven't seen before. There will be weird visions and ideas. And I mean, the scene in Prometheus, which I know not a lot of people like, but where she gets the alien ripped out of her stomach. Mm is a terrifying sequence. There's not going to be in any other movie, yeah. but yeah, it's so great. Even, even people that don't like the movie, including me and I think including David, yeah. all of us say like, well, I mean, there's that scene. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we all like that one. Um, yeah. And like, you know, and I mean, I say this jokingly, but I, and I don't quite know how you reacted because I think you're fairly well known as being a defender of Michael Bay, but also liking mostly liking the Transformers series, right? Just and the third one, really. I mean, just the third one. I that doesn't have <laughs> Optimus Prime with a sword riding on a robot uh, dinosaur. That is true. <laughs> so that's that seems like one of the most. Did you guys see Age of Extinction? I did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty meddling. It's not as bad as the first one, and I mean, the second one is like. It's definitely a unique work of art, and it made me feel probably worse about myself and humanity. <laughs> Not because it's like its place in culture, but like just aesthetically, the way it grinds on on me at least. It was like it was a trying experience to get through in a way that like the way that the audio plays. I mean, Gaspar No in making uh, Irreversible said he went for an audio tone that allegedly would make people vomit. And that's what it feels like Transformers Revenge of the Fallen was engineered to do, even though it probably, you know, ideally wasn't, but that was the effect nonetheless. Well, let's do, let's, let's do that. I'm sorry, David, did you want to, I was going to talk about a couple of things that, I, cause I don't have the elation for blockbusters, but a couple of things that I do like that they can do. I think one thing I think blockbusters can do is almost, uh, perhaps inadvertently, reflect what's going on in the national psyche mm-hmm. do you know what I, mean? I, uh, I mean we t- we started talking about things like the giver and divergent and hunger games and there's a, a, an obsession with like apocalypse and dystopia yeah doesn't doesn't it seem like uh, yeah and, for sure it, it, maze runners coming out yeah in, in like popcorn cinema there's this constant confrontation with the idea of the world ending yeah uh that seems like it's reflecting and and helping us perhaps process something that's actually going on in our brains right now uh with the economy and the environment going the way that they are we're probably we're coming to terms with the fact that or the, not the fact but the notion that we might be on the precipice of a downturn and also uh, i think it's like a sense of relief i mean people like fantasize about apocalypses and such because then at least it's over and you know that everything's you know <laughs> you, you have a sense to what degree things are hopeless you know as long right. as it's on the horizon things could be much worse but here's what i think when i look at like divergent or whatever and they have these smaller communities and the ruins of the larger ones okay. i think they no longer have the technology to know if there's an asteroid coming <laughs> to me that's the number one thing that we've figured out how to do is to look at the sky and hopefully know with enough time if there's an asteroid coming well as they say in uh, armageddon they only see like three percent of the sky so you know got the rest of the sky coming after you uh, i guess that's true man oh man so we only use 10 percent of our brains we only see three percent of the sky how much percent how how big of a percentage did lucy see but the other thing that i like um that maybe doesn't happen as often, but when it does happen, I love it. And we're, uh, we're going to get into why I love the hangover movies, <laughs> because I feel like if you have a, if you have a franchise as it goes on, because the studio, the money-making part is essentially taken care of. Like this is a reliable thing. You perhaps get 
weirder films or you get auteurs asserting themselves a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why The Hangover 2 uh, has, uh, you know, <laughs> Ed Helms, you know, the who plays the nice guy in this huge Hollywood comedy, uh, you know, a, a, <laughs> the corpse of a pig gets splattered across his face. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, on the, on the topic of animal cruelty, in the third Hangover alone, a giraffe gets decapitated, chickens get shot, and dogs get their necks snapped. Oh, the last one happens off screen. Oh, okay. But, uh, and, oh, and uh, I, I would say spoilers, but it was in all the trailers. Um, Mike Epps gets shot and killed. Um, and there's more people getting shot and killed in the third one. And I feel like uh, it's, it, it became so, because, it, because that the certain, the cynical part of it, the vulgar part, um, vulgar in terms of being about money, was essentially on autopilot. Uh, the movies were allowed to get weirder and darker and Todd Phillips was allowed to assert himself more to repeat what I already said. And so that's something that can happen in blockbusters with franchises that I like. All right. Two things. Uh, I'll respond to your, to, to both points, uh, because you've, you've caused me to think, which is very exciting. That's uh, the what first we one set out to do here. The idea of more than, more so maybe even than television. Uh, I feel like the blockbuster, I think you're right. It, because this is the product of studio pandering in many ways to what they think Americans want, or, or at this point a worldwide audience, what people want, mm-hmm. um, that is like the clearest idea of like, okay, this can either be def- uh, uh, you know confirmed or denied. Because, oh, they thought they wanted this. Huge bomb. Apparently people don't want it. Oh, but they thought they wanted this and they were spot on. So what does it mean that people mm-hmm. want this? And so... Going uh, so then going to the uh, the dystopian future thing, and I think it also explains maybe why zombie movies are so uh, movies and TV shows and comic books and everything zombies is are so popular is all zombies everything all zo- is that a what <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, yeah but uh, sounds like a band I feel like <laughs> um, but the uh, but this idea, and you said like people sort of wanting it to end, but I think there's also this this idea of people wanting to sort of test their own metal because people, including me, we've even talked about it on the show to a certain extent, which is in a zombie apocalypse or in an apocalypse or something like that, how do you think you would do? Would you survive? How would you survive? Yeah. That kind of thing. When Jen and I... It's sort of like the... Like- People said before everyone has an idea of what they'd do if they went to prison. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, we? Yeah, absolutely. Because now <laughs> it's all I want to talk about. But when when Jen and I looked at this house with our realtor, who was a very it was like a very nice, casual uh, guy and uh, very low pressure uh, on us. Um, as we were looking around, I had a thought, and he had the same thought apparently. Which was, and he said it, and it was like he read my mind. He said, you know, in a zombie apocalypse, this place is pretty good. Like, <laughs> there's only one entrance, and they have to come upstairs, up like a narrow stairway, to get here. He goes, Every, all your living area, like your living area, your kitchen, bathroom, all that, right. it's all upstairs, it's and defensible. there's only one way to get yeah. there. And I, com- that's completely what I thought about. <laughs> and I just thought, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we could hole up here for a while, and we'd be pretty good. Um so that's 
it is a preoccupation with people and I think I think people look at the world around them and they say like all right we've had it pretty good so I need to start thinking about if things go bad how can I make it so I better watch movies uh, that reflect <laughs> this so I get can get some tips all right bow and arrow I need a bow and arrow um, <laughs> All right, but uh, find two hunky guys and worry yeah. about which one to fall in love. <laughs> <That's> definitely <laughs> yeah. what you want Got to do. Um, uh. Which, incidentally, is my plan for prison. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, uh, and then the second thing, and you, you and I want to get Scott's opinion on the second thing because I could see on his face that he didn't entirely agree with me. What was the second thing <laughs> about auteurs or? Oh no, being I was going to assert themselves as franchises go on. No, I was going to actually agree with you, and that's why I really like the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean movies, mm-hmm. um, because Gore Verbinski has a great mind for spectacle and uh, how to build a sequence in a really unique way. And so, you know, the third one ends with two battleships caught in a whirlpool, <laughs> who gets which gets stuck together and then are firing cannons across the whirlpool. <laughs> And then eventually a giant sea monster comes out. And it's like, that's definitely something you don't see in most movies. And I think those movies really use their budget wisely. And that's just the sh- ends. I, think, okay? I, remember, <laughs> I don't remember exactly what happens because the movie starts with giant up waking up in an alternate dimension. Yeah. So, which is actually a really neat moment. Yeah. I don't like that third movie that much, but I do like that. The third movie is not as good as the second movie, which has the three person sword fight over the box, which has something, you know, whatever the MacGuffin is in that movie. They're, they have a three-person sword fight involving, like, a... And they got that wheel thing. The wheel like. thing, yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing sequence. And Keira Knightley is actually given stuff to do in that movie that isn't, like, pandering faux-feminist bullshit yeah. <laughs> of, like, tough woman. She actually, like, has a perspective. And oh, like in, in King Arthur? I didn't see King Arthur, but yeah. I'm sure it's that kind of thing where it's, yeah. like, well, a strong woman, it means she can kick people, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was my That was my whole... Uh, uh, objection to Lucy before I saw it and realized that she's not a strong woman, uh, not a strong female character at all, but she is much more than kicking people eventually. Uh, did you see Lucy? I yeah, I would say she actually is a strong female character. I mean, I think in that first scene, you get like everything you need to know about her. And I, then you have that. Oh, that's the mark of a strong female character if you can get everything about her out of the way real quick. It's <laughs> not what I meant. I'm saying Scarlett Johansson plays her in such a way that, like, you don't need a lot of exposition. You don't need to know her backstory. And then when she has that phone call with her mother, I thought it was I do love a that. great scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's the thing is, you know what? I agree with you because she starts as a very strong character. I think some people would say that what she eventually turns into makes her a strong character. I think in that moment, she she gains strength in a certain type of perspective, but not in a way that is uniquely female. Right. I think that would happen no matter who the character is. But at the at the beginning, like she is targeted by other characters precisely because she is female, and I think there's a lot of depth to her and that kind of thing. So I actually agree with you in the first half hour of the film. Um, well, but then it makes what comes afterwards. You see the humanity being stripped away from her, and you see how human and how like impulsive and flighty she she was. Yeah. And yeah. then to see all that stripped away, it becomes all the more effective. Yeah, but do, do you view that as a... Sorry, we're speaking completely... We, I have to be vague about this. Cause <laughs> oh, yeah. I would never I would never dream... I think Lucy is often a very dumb movie, but I wouldn't... But insanely ambitious. Yeah. Like, I mean, talking about a blockbuster cause it, that, that takes risks... I find myself wondering how many people were pissed off when they saw that movie. Yeah, I, I was, got a, he got a low cinema score, so there yeah, you go. <laughs> I was, I mean... I was thrilled yeah. by it. They're like, how on earth did this film 
happen at all. Europa Corp, they got their they got their taken money. Boy, They're oh spending boy. a lot. I mean, the movie only cost like twenty five million dollars. It's a pretty yeah, cheap movie. I guess yeah. there's that, and it and it was. I mean, it was number one at the box office. which, yeah. which I was beat out uh, the Rock and Hercules. Yeah, but but that's the other thing is like you know, uh, I feel like there's not I. I think there are a lot of people that would think it was a sort of a bait and switch. Uh, and an argument could be made that it was. In the best way possible. <laughs> you, and, you and I say that, yes. Do you take the, to bring back to the conversation, do you take the marketing campaign into account when you see one of these big blockbuster hmm. movies? Um, not really. I, 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 try I, I don't really watch trailers anymore. So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll see them incidentally as a result of going to the movies so often. But there are tons of movies that I see knowing surprisingly little and yeah. am thrilled as a result. Uh, well, you were going to say something before I interrupted you about my second point about auteurs and, yeah, and weirdness. I think you guys mentioned already that uh, at this point, certainly, you can't talk about blockbusters, blockbusters without talking about sequels and franchises. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of somebody, Gore Verbinski, or as we've talked about so often, Tim Burton with Batman Returns, or Joe Dante with Gremlins 2, the new batch. Yeah. Um, the freedom is not merely that it's a blockbuster. It's that the first one did so well. And now it's kind of assumed, probably rightly assumed, although not necessarily in the case of Gremlins 2. Uh, that's the new batch, David. Um, uh, the studio rightly assumes this is going to make money no matter what. Probably the same with the Hangover movies. This is going to make money no matter what, so just let them do what they want to do. Uh, and so I feel like that is specific to the blockbuster sequel. Um, it's sometimes, and at this point, though, it's almost exactly the same. I mean, the Gore Verbinski and Giant Depp use that same logic for the Lone Ranger. But you um, li- didn't you like the Lone Ranger? I I you like it more than you not. You didn't hate it. No, yeah, I like it more than not. And I think it has the greatest final battle sequence I've seen in pretty much any movie ever. Um, what, was that? what was that? It was It's two trains running on parallel tracks that like Ooh. sometimes dive amongst each other and the heroes jumping between the trains. And gunfights across the trains, horses riding through trains, and the movie's on. I think it's on Netflix. Um, anyway, you should definitely check out that last sequence. I don't think um, there's ever been a, se- a film sequence on a train that I haven't liked. It's great. I didn't even like the Wolverine that much, but that train sequence is pretty solid because the forward momentum of the train mirrors the forward momentum of the movie. Watch out! You know there's something at the end, probably, and yeah. it could be bad, could be good. The um, general is exciting. Yeah, it's an exciting comedy. Um, Speaking of trains, uh. Because you we, we, you've moved from franchises to filmmakers or filmmaking tandems in this mm-hmm. case, uh, who are reliable, and you're talking about trains got me thinking about Robert Zemeckis and the Polar Express, hmm. which got me thinking about Beowulf and the fact that Beowulf, uh, as that movie exists, though I don't think it's that great. Um, I don't think would exist if another filmmaker like Robert Zemeckis has a track record. And they're letting him do this, but it's actually a pretty bizarre idea. Like, I'm going to make oh, uh, yeah. PG-13, or originally, I guess the, it was meant to be R, but I guess they got away with some stuff because it's not real. <laughs> no. Because it's animated, it can be pretty, pretty much, cool. yeah. You can have Grendel, like, ripping people in half and stuff. Uh, so essentially, an incredibly violent cartoon, but not cartoon, motion, pic- motion capture <laughs> uh, t- telling of... Uh, a old English poem, one of the oldest yeah. <laughs> pieces of literature ever, and we're going to release it at Christmas time. <laughs> like that's so strange that that happened. Yeah, that's. Do you think that was intended to be a blockbuster? Um, I, I don't think. I, I think. I mean, one of the things I don't like about Robert Zemeckis, there are a lot of things I do like about him. One of the things I don't like about him is that I think he uh, thinks too much about how much the audience will like what he's doing. I've talked about it before. 
You think that, so? That my problems. I feel with, like Beowulf is the biggest argument against that. But uh, within the movie, he makes a lot of decisions playing to the audience. I mean, I think the best one of the best ones in that movie is when uh, is the hero named Beowulf? Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. When Beowulf is like hanging onto a dragon or something, and then this tree comes flying at you, and in 3D, you're like, oh, God, that's a tree. <laughs> and it really gets you. Yeah. And that's definitely something he made because he knew he was making the movie in 3D, and he knew mm-hmm. the audience would react in a certain way. Yeah. And so I think those instincts can serve him right in some regards, but I know what you mean, and also that like there's a hedging of the bets somewhat. Because I think that movie was originally supposed to be animated, like almost like a painting, and kind of abstracted, huh. and then eventually became like, Man, every, generic looking. Everything well, the, you hear about that movie and what it was supposed to be sounds. <laughs> and I, I actually kind of admire the film as is. I like it a lot, um, actually. And do you? Now I, um, I was a PA on it. Yeah, you got to see how the <laughs> how the sausage was made. But uh, what that also means is I got to flip through the script or at least the sides, which mm-hmm. was written by Neil Gaiman and um, what's his name, Roger Roger Avery. Roger oh, Avery. Yes, yes. Um, clearly, two people who are established enough that. Uh, it's like, oh, there are rules as to how a script is supposed to be laid out. <laughs> Fuck you. We're going to yeah. say whatever we want. So it's uh, the script itself was a delightful read. Yeah. Because uh, there's the one part that really sticks out is that uh, when he's on the back of the dragon, because yeah. he's fighting the dragon while he's on the back. That's of right. So the dragon's trying to shake him off, and at one point the dragon looks back at him and smiles. And the d- script direction was the dragon looks back as if to say, how do you like them apples? <laughs> <laughs> I really want to know which of the two of them wrote that line, because it could go either way. And I believe, uh, David, you mentioned to me that you had read in the script that, um, and maybe maybe it was in the script, or maybe it was something that Crispin, a choice Crispin Glover made, that that Grendel walks around as if in constant pain because he simply shouldn't be. And the fact that he shouldn't be is physically painful to him. Well, it's, it's specifically about his ear. I, I don't know if that was in. I, I don't know if that was in the script or something that Crispin Glover did. But um, the, I mean, the whole reason that Grendel comes down and attacks the Mead Hall or whatever is because yeah. he can't stand all the noise. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the idea was that he has an incredibly sensitive ear and sounds cause him pain. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Crispin Glover would be doing the thing where he's like tearing people in half and stuff, yeah. but in, like repeatedly wincing and covering his head hmm. as well. Well, he should probably keep people from you know making people scream is not going to be helpful at all. He's, he's really, you know, running counter to his goal. Grendel's not supposed to be a bright, uh, I guess not. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of forethought. All right. Well, this isn't the Beowulf discussion episode. Uh, (laughs) That's for later. Episode 400. No question about it. Yeah. I'm willing to call an audible and let's just talk about Beowulf. Um, but, uh, what else do we like about blockbusters? Yeah, I'll, I'll throw it to you, Scott. Else? You, I feel like I'm... There's drunk. nothing else. <laughs> now, um, another movie I was going to mention along the lines of filmmakers getting... like, I mean, The Lone Ranger, nobody would ever greenlight that concept if it wasn't these two guys who wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, another movie like that is Speed Racer, which the Wachowskis wanted to do, and which got made and which tanked horribly, but is one of my favorite movies of all time, legitimately. <laughs> and not just because it's big and poppy and strange and has ninjas for no reason. Um, but it has a real heart to it that is very rare in all the, like, so falsely and painfully earnest blockbusters that are made these days. Um, I mean, the low, again, the low point in Speed Racer uh, starts to turn when John Goodman sits down and has a real, like, honest heart-to-heart with 
speed racer there's called speed and pop racer people think when they first see the movie that they're like nicknames and no the kid's name is actually speed racer um that's on his birth certificate or whatever um not a lot of career options i guess um but so they give time to the heart and the earnestness that most blockbusters kind of like casually toss off as you know i mean there's that scene in the winter soldier where uh steve goes to visit uh peggy carter um, which should be, you know, essentially the heart of the story, his struggle between his past self and waking up in the current era, but which pretty much gets abandoned throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, it felt rather perfunctory, whereas yeah. there is another scene in it where Nick Fury is talking uh, to is he is he talking to Steve Rogers or uh, Robert Redford's character uh, in the elevator and telling a story about his his grandfather and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, that's actually they actually allow some time for that. And I liked that. But yeah. The moment, the idea of, oh, all, everyone I used to know is dead except this one person who I loved very dearly. Yeah, let's just rush through that. <laughs> yeah, it's it was a wasted opportunity. Whereas in Speed Racer, it becomes part of the climate. It becomes part of the final race is mm-hmm. him racing essentially for his family and not like to save the world or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. it becomes a family endeavor. Did you like Cloud Atlas? I forget. I did. Yeah, me too. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have anything else to say. What the, what's the you next know, one? Uh, uh, what's the one that got pushed back? Uh, Jupiter Ascending, yeah. Yeah. Which I haven't seen the trailer or anything, but I'm sure is a delight. Yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm in the tank for the Wachowskis. Yeah. I remember um, Tom Sharpling of the best show on WFMU, the dear departed best show on WFMU, <laughs> uh, coming clean about the fact that he loves Speed Racer. And I think his ex- explanation was, look, they're weirdos, and they made a movie for weirdos. <laughs> um, it was a way of summing things up very well. Yeah. Um, I wanted to okay before we wrap up because I feel like we're near the end of. Uh, yeah, I got one more thing I want to get to, but okay. okay. Well, the one thing I want to get to that we haven't talked about is um, I mean, I talked about The Hangover. We I don't think we've talked about uh, comedies as a part of the blockbuster yeah. thing because that I don't know if you like. I don't know sex tape or neighbors or all the uh, neighbors sucked i, I hated neighbors tape. i didn't see sex tape <laughs> um, i'm glad you hated neighbor because I, I, it's near the bottom of the list for movies of 2014 for me uh, and i feel like comedies are almost the opposite of what we're saying what we're saying the best blockbusters are which is uh which is that they can be uh ambitious and weird and daring or whatever but uh, I feel like studio comedies are almost never that i think neighbors is pretty weird and daring and it's i mean you have that whole scene with the breast pump <laughs> that is i don't find that weird and daring at all i feel like i just found it so uncomfortable they like i mean there's no way a studio boss would come up with that scene i guess it's like no, I, I i disagree i think really since what going you, all the way back to like american pie there's been this idea of like oh raunch and then uh judd avatar came along and said oh you can do raunch with heart and but so this is more like than raunchy this is like I mean, I found it deep thing comfortable. <laughs> but I don't think they're trying to... I think that's just raising the bar. They're just trying yeah, to, okay. have to explain this scene <laughs> afterwards because I didn't see it. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, it's it's gross. Um, and it also looks weird because it's clearly not right. Burns real like real breasts. So it's the, there's a bit of like an uncanny valley type thing. <laughs> uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> uh, and, but uh, I, I, don't, yeah, I don't feel like that's like, let's raise the bar and make people feel weird. It's just like raising the bar on raunchiness because that seems like that has to be part of these movies now in your opinion what does make for i mean i know i immediately know my answer but what would make for a weird and edgy 
uh, I forget if those were the words you used, uh, comedy. I don't think I used the word edgy. I hope I did because I yeah. don't like that word. Yeah, I, I, mean, like I, I didn't like saying it. Uh, I feel like it was something else. Anything. I don't know. My favorite com- well, my favorite comedy of the year is They Came Together. Okay. Um, which is, um, and I think my main problem with a lot of these studio comedies, I mentioned uh, that having this raunchy scene um, is essentially like checking a box to me. Mm-hmm. That's how I see it, that they're very cynical. And that it seems like there's just a list of things like let's make this ha- these things happen in this movie. Um, whereas they came together, uh, which is not only my favorite comedy, it's my favorite movie so far of 2014, um, is like the best auteurist works. It's a whole thing. It's a it's a unified point of view mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, pervasive and present in the entire movie. Uh, and, and so that I guess that's all I look for. My, my two favorite, yeah, my two favorite comedies of the year, they came together, and Obvious Child, um, which Obvious Child mm-hmm. has the thing that I think um, uh, Judd Apatow gets credit for, but doesn't actually go all in on, which is um, telling real character based stories mm-hmm. next, you know, alongside all the like wacky comedy, um, and it, to some extent he's done that. I mean, I like four-year-old virgin and knocked up but i don't love them um whereas obvious child feels more like um an early not even not an early early but like a early mid woody allen movie but for a more modern uh sensibility but nobody would ever argue that was a blockbuster like no i wouldn't talk about comedies okay well so Um, let's so let's and then i'm comparing that to studio comedies which again feel like they're checking the box i mean i guess and you occasionally up- you get something i um i liked uh i didn't love but i liked the five-year engagement okay um because that had a I, I thought had consistent character uh beats what time of year did observe and report come out i, I don't know think june okay I it maybe it was-, it was either june or april okay because i thought it was around blockbuster season and and, yeah. and i mean there were there were billboards around town so i mean they're pushing it i think in a way they don't push indie films and the yeah, presence sure. of seth rogan i think uh and that's the, why yeah, I mean, yeah. seth rogan uh, so that, i mean that almost has less to do i think with our comedy discussion than with the discussion we were having about lone ranger or beowulf yeah, uh, yeah. weirder stuff being able to be made because of star power either in yeah. front of or behind the camera so do you think there's ever going to be a blockbuster comedy like a, a not a comedy that becomes a blockbuster like we were talking about with something like Little Miss Sunshine, but something that was meant to be a summer release, a big, you know, tentpole film, and it will be this original thing that you're talking I, about. I don't know if I would know this, but I love 22 Jump Street. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and I, which we've talked about on the show. I thought 22 Jump Street was great. But a sequel. That's the other thing. It, uh-huh. They are now free. They're free to do something with it. So... We've put a lot of constraints on this. <laughs> Summer, meant to be a blockbuster, not a sequel, very original, and you've never seen it. Scott, do you have anything? A Million Ways to Die in the West. <laughs> Nobody else would make that movie. <laughs> okay. okay. And I actually <laughs> I really it. liked it. Yeah. Um, but even if you didn't like it, nobody is going to make a Western comedy with a huge cast that's actually shot in Monument Valley. Mm-hmm. Like, this wouldn't exist if not for uh, Seth MacFarlane. That's a, actually a good point. That uh, I like all that about. I didn't see the movie. I, I mean, like I guess that, those ideas behind it. Yeah, I, I didn't I, see it, and I didn't see Ted either. I but really I really mean, didn't I, like Ted, and I think that's why I stayed away. I I liked Ted because I like the jokes in it, but I think it had the problem that actually is the reverse of your problem with Neighbors, um, which is that I felt as with Neighbors, I felt like the heart was kind of shoehorned in, 
and didn't really feel organic to the story. Um, and that's my bigger frustration with comedies these days is that they feel the need to like have this earnestness to them that they don't always seem to naturally feel. And that's why I liked Million Ways to Die in the West. And that's why I liked Muppets Most Wanted, which was got rid of all the nostalgia of the first movie and was just a silly adventure movie. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I didn't love Muppets Most Wanted when I first saw it. There were things I loved about it, of course. But um, upon seeing it, uh, where was I? I don't remember where I was traveling, but I saw it on a plane. Okay. And uh, on rewatching it, I was like, you know, this is more fun uh, than I re- than I recall. I remember there are still things that, like songs that I don't really appreciate, don't really like, and uh, sequences I don't really like. But I don't appreciate. I don't appreciate that, that song, <laughs> sir. Uh, Brett McKenzie. Um, but uh, but yeah, I came to actually enjoy that one quite a bit. Um, so let me ask you this, uh, and maybe this is a, a good wrap up question. So what we've been talking about is liking blockbusters because. Almost because it provides a, a Trojan horse, the you know whether it be a sequel or bankable stars or whatever, what almost what they can get away with. Are there any blockbusters that that any of us respond to that are they're not really trying anything new? They're just a good conventional blockbuster, and we still like them because they're everything a blockbuster is supposed to be, but they're not. It's not necessarily pandering, nor is it cynical, nor is it like studio calculation, but it is just, it's sincere um, and accomplishes its, one could say, low ambition goals to well, just be a good blockbuster. Obviously, Scott disagrees, but I thought The Avengers was great. So does that count? I mean, I like The Avengers more than I didn't. I don't want to overstate my case against it. Um, I thought the first half was an absolute mess, but as soon as they get on that helicarrier, I think it really starts to pick up and figure out what it wants to be. So um, once... Sounds to me like you liked it when once they assembled. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying. Um, that's a really good question. I, I because I feel like I there are there's definitely a yes in there somewhere, but I'm trying to think of what the answer is. Well, the one I'd point to most recently is last year's White House Down, which okay. kind of tanked at the box office, but which you know it's not part of a larger franchise. There's not going to be a sequel. I guess there might have been if it had done better. Yeah. Um, but it's not you know a brand or anything. It's just a very simple situation that's executed very honestly and done very cleverly. Um, and was not my favorite movie last summer, but probably the most like purely entertaining in, cl- in terms of just like delivering the thrills and what you kind of look for a big summer movie for. Yeah, did I, you like um, Real Steel? Because I, I didn't see it, but a lot of people seem to feel that way about it. That like, yeah, I'd, that, but that's the thing. But that's I, one, I didn't like. That's one that I enjoy, but then I have, I usually in you know incorporate some caveats to it. I, I mean, like a blockbuster that. Again, it's it's not trying to do anything aside from be a good, satisfying, engaging blockbuster, and it accomplishes that. Well, and I don't. Okay. I'm not apologizing for it. No, I'm because I'm looking at movies from recent years that I've liked, and I'm coming up with a couple of examples that I don't know if you would consider that you would say they count. Okay, because blockbusters have become so expensive that these two action movies could be seen as being too low on the rung. Okay. Uh, which is to some extent two guns. I thought was a blast. I thought it was okay. I didn't love it. Um, and I, as listeners know, and we'll hear about more in a few weeks. Actually, I love Jack Reacher. Okay, Do, are those blockbusters? I wouldn't consider Jack Reacher, although like Ghost Protocol, I think does what we're talking about. And Mission Impossible Three, I know we're all fans of. Oh here. yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Um, but that's a sequel. That's a sequel. That's true. Um, yeah. Last year's actually After Earth, which people kind of dismissed because of Shyamalan and. Will Smith's insane interview that came out right before it. Um, 
Did you guys not read this? No, I didn't read this. Not. Oh, I didn't see the movie. You have to. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you have to read this. Will just make me uncomfortable. Like I don't know. <laughs> I have a hard time with stuff like that. Like if if a star is saying something weird, uh, if I'm reading it, it's a little bit better. But like if people say, "Oh, you got to look at this." Oh crazy yeah, I, thing know, I hate said. the videos. Do make me very uncomfortable. Oh, but in print, it's more palatable for okay. me for some reason. Um, so those and this year's Edge of Tomorrow, I thought was very good. Well, and that's the thing is that's the one I I jumped to. It's currently I think my third favorite movie of the year. Oh. I really I really loved it. Really responded to it. Um, and I'm trying to think like okay. Is there a caveat? Is the caveat the humor? I like the humor. The humor. No, no, no. I I mean, like, does that make it like an exception? Does that make it? Oh, yes, it's a blockbuster, but it's good because it's got all this humor in it. No, that just makes it a well done movie. (laughs) Exactly. That's what makes it a well done movie. It, It incorporates a crowd pleasing element that it didn't necessarily have to. The story still could have been the same, but it didn't have to have this gallows humor. So I don't think it's trying to get away with anything. It's just incorporating other crowd-pleasing elements, which makes it, I think, a ge- maybe that's why I just love it so much, is that it's just content to be what a great what it is, which is a great blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest thrills in Raiders of the Lost Ark is Indy shooting a guy, which is yeah. pretty gal's humor, so, you know, yeah, if that absolutely. counts, then anything in Edge of Tomorrow is... Uh, I'll tell you what I like about Edge of Tomorrow that I think um, puts it more in line with uh, Two Guns and Jack Reacher than with, mm-hmm. say, these other big action movies is um how uh tightly plotted it is and yeah that it, it, it 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 sort of establishes a pace and sticks to it mm-hmm. that's Whereas, white house down does the same thing uh, but maybe i should see it cause yeah i, I really should respond to that because one of the because as much as i like avengers i agree with you that it takes it's forever <laughs> to get going um and and i think a lot of uh these big blockbusters because it's this everything but the kitchen sink type of approach mm-hmm. one of the first things that gets lost is the pace yeah yeah there's um, something about trimming the fat it's one of the things that i like about uh dawn of the planet of the apes i don't think it's a perfect film but i responded to it a lot because it's very streamlined uh as as i it feels like it should be given that there's not a lot to distract people in this in this dystopian future <laughs> uh everything is simplified and the story becomes simplified as well that, okay, but now I will tell, talk about what I didn't like about Edge of Tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> I think part of it, and I so try not to let this be an issue, but I, it, it was out a few weeks before I saw it, and mm-hmm. so many people were telling me, this is it, this is it, this is the blockbuster you've been waiting for for years. I, I think maybe I got a little too excited for Edge of Tomorrow, hmm. and it didn't. Uh, but I think the main thing is the just the way it ends when once yeah once the, the ending's pretty soft yeah once the central conceit is done away with uh yeah you can argue that that raises the stakes yeah. you know once you know like okay he's not gonna wake up again if he dies now um I, and on paper that works but uh the effect is that you know you know now i know he's not gonna die because this is Oh, big, you know what? This is a big blockbuster movie. <laughs> I did not make that assumption. Uh, I thought because because that would be the ultimate arc to this character, who he started as being a hundred percent self preservation, and now he's literally willing to die. That his death would then be seen as a a wonderful sacrifice that we can all finally appreciate, and that but it, but know, that's why the epilogue is. <laughs> But I like very troublesome. The, I like the handling of the epilogue more than I actually really? like it. Yeah, but I like the way it's handled. He, he, part of the reason he dies so many times in the movies is because they've established just how uh, 
just uh, unstoppable these aliens are. Oh, and so, I was going to say how inept he is. <laughs> no, but <laughs> at like, first, yes. But yeah. really, they've established these things are killing machines. That yeah. and, and so at the end, when you've got okay, he these five guys have to go this amount of distance to do the thing. I felt like well, based on what we've seen, there's no fucking way they're going to make it, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so it's going to have to rely on close calls and cheats and miracles to get him there. Even if he does die at the end. um, And killing off the rest of the team in the process, thereby like (laughs) negating the purpose of bringing them along. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. So I I definitely had a lot of problems with the end. Um, And I think I'm becoming the old fogey who uh, bristles about too much CGI. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the whole, that whole underwater sequence at the end of Edge of Tomorrow, I felt like I I didn't, I didn't feel like I was there or I was with him. See, this is another thing that I like about Blockbuster is people, I, I know, like, I understand the point against CGI. Um, I'm not against it across the board. Mm-hmm. I guess I appreciate the fakeness of it um, in the same way that I like, uh, you know, old British movies that have model trains, you know, <laughs> they're supposed to sub for real trains. There's a certain amount of artifice to it that I'm totally okay with and actually appreciate because it's more modeled and invented and created. And but I, the, the, I think... We're talking. Uh, we're talking about the same thing, but the approach is different. Mm-hmm. Um, with the model trains, because I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing, because I like that too. Um, or just models in general. Thing like the beginning of um, the original Man Who Knew Too Much, which has like a well, oh, yeah, now yeah. be a helicopter shot, but it's clearly just like pushing yeah. a model of a little <laughs> town. I love it. Well, now it'd um, be a CG shot, right? Yeah, it, exactly. It was once a helicopter shot. Um, I, but that, I guess. I don't know. This is a very difficult argument that could be its own episode. In fact, we did an episode on visual effects very long, early long time on. Ago, it's, yeah. it's in the first 40. You have to pay 10 bucks if you want to hear that. Um, the argument is, like, I, I feel like I can see the effort in a way with the models in a good way. I can mm-hmm. feel like they're really trying. And with CGI, it feels like... Now, I know, obviously, that it's that's a, that represents a lot of hard work by a lot of people to make that stuff. But I feel like on the from the creator's point of view, it's lazy. Do you know what I mean? Um, it can be, and it can't be. I mean, how do you, how do you mean it's yeah, lazy it, on the creative? Just like they are like, leave it up to CGI. Yeah. That's some directors and not all. Yeah. And I think, but that I think, that, and again, this is what I'm saying. I'm not against CGI across the board. I think obviously like, uh, you know, Peter Jackson has done it very well in a lot of his movies. Um, whereas it ruins the ending of I am legend. Yeah, yeah, like, that's something I when, hate. When you, or even yeah, when you all just, of the uh, vampire creatures in I Am Legend. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. there's no need for them to be like that. And, yeah, and so when the, you just as easily, it might cost more money and it might take more time to apply. But when you just as easily could just have people in makeup, because that's the thing. Peter Jackson uses CGI, but when it comes to orcs, it's people in makeup. Oh, and in, so in the Lord of the Rings, in Lord of the Rings, not yeah. in the Hobbit, which is not. Yeah, uh, yeah, which is uh, they still have got a lot of guys in makeup. Yeah, the not the, as many, but. The main guys are makeup. Yeah. Um, no, not the, the, the main orc in, I forget his name, in the Hobbit movies. The guy with, like, the fake arm. Like, he's a totally CGI. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of the, the dwarves and stuff. Okay. Um, well, I'm talking about orcs. I'm not talking <laughs> about dwarves, I'm talking about orcs. Okay, sorry. But I also think it's part of, like, the aesthetic you're trying to craft. Like, in I Am Legend, it doesn't make a lot of sense because they're dealing with a lot of practical sets. Mm-hmm. And That's they're trying true. to establish the realism of the world. Whereas I think... Actually, in the Hobbit movies, Peter Jackson going for a more fake world than in the Lord of the Rings movies. So the but fake stuff doesn't. It feels like part and parcel of the movies. Make it feels like he's making more of a cartoon. I guess it bothers it me a little bit. You know what I? Uh, I think I'm 
I think I'm in. You're in disagreement with me here, Scott. But one of the movies I loved a few years ago, I've been very vocal about, is Snow White uh, and the Huntsman, right. which I think uses CGI brilliantly in a oh, way I'd that agree I with compare that. to the original Lord of the Rings movies with with a great uh, collaboration between computer imagery and practical effects and production design. Yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, use of CG when you when it's when it's an artistic choice when it's like all right, this is almost the only way we can do it. So I guess that's what we have to do. Or if is, it's the way you're doing it. I mean, Speed Racer is almost entirely CGI. Right, but it's but, the way they're making the movie. Yeah, like, for the movie that we, that we want to make, this is the most practical option. Okay. And so I feel like, I don't... I, like, if you have ambition that literally the, the physical world cannot match, then CGI is... It becomes an organic decision, a pragmatic decision, uh, based on you wanting to achieve something artistically. But if it's meant as a shortcut, if it actually, if incorporating CGI is an indication of a lack of ambition, uh, or just to make things easier rather than possible at all, I feel like that's when the laziness comes through, and that's when you get the vampires from Iron Legend. And yeah, and I actually say the bigger problem in that regard is now green screen, mm-hmm. um, which. T- as soon as you start to see it, I feel like you start to notice it everywhere. And in like, even a movie like the secret life of Walter Mitty, they'll just do green screen backgrounds instead of building a set, which would be pretty simple to build, you know? Um, and it starts to remove the characters a little bit more. Yeah. But, and that's the thing is, you know, there's always, no matter with technology, no matter what it is, there's a, a bad way to do it in a good, I mean, uh, Scott, you and I are huge fans of, Sky Captain the World of Tomorrow, yes. which is one of the, which is maybe, in my opinion, the best use of green screen I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, okay, so I want uh, to to sort of wrap things up uh, a little bit. There is one more point I want. Oh, uh, okay, okay yeah, go yeah, ahead. I'll make it pretty quick. Um, just in terms of make it quick. Was <laughs> 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 that a bit you're doing there? I don't know. Yeah, um, that was a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just in terms of bringing one's own sense of uh, who people are and the extent to which people can vary. People expect people in movies in general and blockbusters to stick to one certain path. And I think it's the reason that people didn't like Prometheus. And more recently, I think it's the reason people don't like uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which is definitely a very messy movie. Both are. Mm -hmm. But I think stick to a certain sense of humanity that is unpredictable and therefore to me more affecting. Um so I just hope in the future people are more open to various ways of expressing humanity in movies. And that's not like dictated to them, like in the dark night where they tell you everyone's amb- uh, purpose in life and they tell you when everyone's changing their purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, just watching behavior and letting that inform the texture of the movie instead of, you know, it caught me off guard and so it must be bad, you know. So you're saying... In the, at the end of Prometheus, when that big thing is rolling at them and they keep running in a straight line, when they could just run either right or left and get out of the thing's way, I've never that's had just a, human behavior. I've never had a huge object fall almost fall on me before. I'd imagine your logic isn't really taking over at the moment, and you're probably just trying to run away. I mean, people die in ridiculous ways all the time. I guess, yeah, but those aren't. The <laughs> it does seem like one of the more avoidable ways. <laughs> well, so is a if something's going to so, fall on you, you hope it's going to fall on you like that. Well, so is a vending machine falling on people, but people die from falling vending machines. You know, it's like, man, did you ever see? It's a new episode of Community where there's the guy coming to uh, test the safety of the school. Yeah, and uh, he's testing the vending machine, seeing if it'll, <laughs> he goes six people. 
uh, six people a year die from vending machines falling on them, and five of them are security inspectors. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, shoot. We and should I've, wrap up. Yeah, I've forgotten what I was going to say. Oh, no, I'm sorry. sorry. Well, something we have forgotten to say for weeks, and I'm looking for it here. Someone sent us a VHS tape. Oh, hell really? Yes, I believe it was Caleb. Yes. Where did, what did you do with it? Uh, it's in my closet. Right there? Yeah. Literally right there? You <laughs> said you could get it if you wanted? <laughs> There's what? a movie that we talked about, uh, have talked about uh, ad nauseum on the podcast before, and weeks ago, someone, <laughs> <laughs> someone sent us an actual VHS copy. Oh, nice. That's the uh, Dutch, uh, right? Dutch? I believe so, yeah. Dutch horror film The Lift. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this has the compromised tagline. Right. The, now, as we've talked <laughs> about on the show before, the the version that, the the edition that uh, was at the vi- the video update in mm-hmm. Springfield, uh, Missouri, mm-hmm. um, where that you were used to work, had the tagline, take the stairs, take the stairs, for God's sake, take the stairs. Yes. Um, this one just says, whatever you do, take the stairs, which is pretty good. But it's, it's right. not as good as the Once original. you know what's out there, it just exactly. pales in yeah. comparison. But I don't want to sound like I'm um, being uh, ungrateful toward our friend Caleb. Because now we have a VHS copy of The Lift, which we can watch whenever we want on our VHS players. <laughs> yeah. I think I have one in my garage. There are ones called a VCR, in fact. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, what I do like is that if you look at the uh, title, uh, how would you say the, the filmmaker's name? Dick Moss. Dick Moss. It's Dick Moss's The Lift. Like yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> This is an auteurist vision. It's even yeah. on the top of the case there, too. They really want from oh, every yeah. angle you and see the on lift. The side. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, yeah. it is when Dick you, Moss's yeah. The Lift. When you think The Lift, you got to think <laughs> Dick Moss. <laughs> so I, uh, I hope Caleb had didn't quit listening because we didn't acknowledge that he sent us this. Indeed. Because, well, people, you know what? Here's, here's, the, here's the real problem. It's okay. you, the listener. You don't send us shit often enough for it to be a normal part of the show. That's true. If you sent us more shit, it would be like a regular segment. But poor Caleb has to wait for weeks because no one else is sending shit to remind us. The listeners are definitely asking for more segments on the show. Without a doubt, <laughs> these shows are not running long enough. We need a mail segment. Yeah, as we approach the two-hour mark. <laughs> uh, you can find our P.O. box on the website. So all you got to do is... Uh, Look up that and send us shit. Scott, you like the show. You started as a fan. <laughs> I love the show. I love that they go long. I love every every time I look at the player and it's over two hours, I'm like, it's a good week. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly do. Right. I have a lot of time to listen to podcasts, so it's great. Glad to hear it. All right. Well, uh, thank you for being here, Scott. This was fun. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. You can find us. Uh, I'm telling the listener now, not you, Scott. Uh, I can find you there, too. Yes, Actually, can... uh, I'm sorry. Before oh, we... <laughs> no, it's just, uh, Scott, you're, you see more movies than basically anybody I know. Uh, week I think Kyle's week. getting up there. He's really like... Kyle's getting... Yeah, that's true, yes. Uh, but invariably, like, if I see you in a week, I say, what have you seen? And you'll list, like, three things you've seen that day. Yeah. Um, well, Saturday's my big movie day. That's your so. big movie yeah. day. Um, so what are some movies... Let's say this, blockbusters. What All are right. some blockbusters that are in theaters right now that you recommend people see? Well, like I said, this year kind of sucks. Um, Edge of Tomorrow is still hanging around some theaters as WB is trying to get to that $100 million mark. Um, oh, man, other than that, uh, if 22 Jump Street's still around, mm-hmm. did uh, you see Guardians of the Galaxy is okay. It has I, a good I, first I, half. I enjoyed it for the most part. Did you see, and if so, did you like Get On Up? I have not seen it. I have no desire to see it. I, I liked it a lot. Really? I Do you, do you see The Help? Because it's the same director. I did not see The Help. Okay, because I despise The Help, so okay. <laughs> that is not... Uh, endearing me to the movie. 
I don't know what to say. Okay, <laughs> so, so go see that. Edge of Tomorrow. Do not if the Help is playing in a movie <laughs> in a theater near you. Do not see it. Go see Edge of Tomorrow instead. Right. So um, you can find uh, you can find us. You can find my review of Get On Up at battleshippretension.com. That's where you find, uh, like I said, our reviews. The reviews written by all three of us, um, in and also this podcast and that podcast and all the other podcasts in the BP fleet. You can uh, email me at david at battleshippretension.com or email Tyler at tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow me on Twitter at the pretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of More Than One Lesson, his other podcast. What's going on over at MTOL this week? All right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, we uh, Our most recent episode is about Anton Corbin's A Most Wanted Man. And it was a good conversation. Really That's enjoyed not how it. I pronounce it. <laughs> oh, Oh, jeez. <laughs> For a moment, I thought you were making reference to the fact that it's very easy to accidentally say a man most wanted. Uh-huh. But no, no, that's not what you're saying. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying at all. You're talking about the superhero most wanted man. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yes. And also, he I can't think, walk down the street, this guy. Um, also, I think it's Anton Corbine. Oh, okay. All right. I, I only think that because a listener wrote in and told us that once. Oh, really? <laughs> we were talking about the American. Someone said it's Corbine. Oh, okay. Well, that hopefully. That be wrong, though. Yeah, and I hope they don't listen anymore. Um... Okay, my other podcast, my uh, sorry, my other podcast is called Hey Watch This with Paul and David. I do that with uh, Paul Goebel, the king of TV. This week we're talking about the new TNT show Legends. Which, uh, based on your Twitter, you did not care for. <laughs> oh my. What is that show even about? Um, well, apparently in CIA or FBI undercover work, um, a false identity is known as a legend. Yeah. And so Sean Bean plays a guy who's like a master at undercover work and he can take on all these different identities oh he's the saint uh, i guess so he has all these legends but then i guess the mystery is that something's happened to him and his his life as martin odom fbi agent is a legend that he doesn't isn't even aware isn't his real identity anymore all right it's a cool idea let me tell you something for people who this is a tease what we'll talk about on hey watch this this week here's something that happens in the movie Ali Larder, Ali Larder plays his handler. Mm-hmm. So one part they find out, oh no, our CI has been tortured and has given up the fact that Martin is an undercover agent. The bad guys, including Joko Ivanek, know now that he's undercover, or that, that, that he's FBI. And the one tech is like, but there's no way, he's already under, there's no way to get him a message. He's at the meeting at the strip club. And Ali Larder says, I know how to get him a message. <laughs> and she fucking dresses up as a stripper and gives him a lap dance while giving while giving him exposition. Couldn't she be I, a waitress? I felt so bad for everyone, including <laughs> Allie Larder. It's the worst. It's the dumbest thing I've seen since the part in X Men First Class where Rose Byrne <laughs> does essentially the same thing. Uh, at least in Legends, Allie Larder had to like change into stripper gear. Yeah. Rose Byrne, <laughs> Rose Byrne's character in X Men First Class, apparently wore like matching sexy underwear <laughs> to a fucking stakeout. <laughs> stupid. Uh, anyway, so that's a stupid thing that happened in Legends. We'll talk about that on Hey Watch This. The other thing we're talking about, which I haven't watched yet, is Cat Williams' new stand-up special. Okay. So. Scott, where can people find you and your work on the internet? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow. That's R A I L of Tomorrow. That's also the uh, website. Uh, my infrequently updated website, RailofTomorrow.com. Uh, BattleshipRetention.com, as previously mentioned, and CriterionCast.com, where we will hopefully be resuming regular episodes exploring titles in the Criterion collection very soon. 
Okay, I haven't been asked on in a while. Well, we haven't been doing regular episodes All right, in a I'm while. So. I haven't been asked on in a while. <laughs> yeah, okay. Harold Lloyd has had two movies released in Criterion <laughs> Collection, and uh, I'd be happy to talk uh, about either one, if not both of them. Good to know. All right. Um, and yeah, um, yes, you. your work appears at Battleship Retention and Criterion Cast, but which one are you a co-editor? Uh, that can only be said of BattleshipRetention.com. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. All right. So um, thank you for being here, Scott. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 